There you go. Much better. WGTS in this special hands on heart project. The team is on hand at the Iwo Jima Memorial until 2 o'clock this afternoon and inviting you to Open give an window. unwrapped toy for a child.
101.9. I'm Brandy. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Here's Josh Wilson, Revolutionary. I can listen to my heart. I can listen to the world. I can listen to my problems. But what I think I need to hear, nice and loud and crystal clear, is about the world who's going to solve them. Oh, I need something that can fill my soul. of the Ordinary Form, Latin and English, with 2010 ICEL English Translation, Annunciation Catholic Church, March 1st, 2015. This is available on Preses Latine. This is the chants of the Mass, so I want to learn them. This is a booklet, so we'll start with Ordo Missiae Cum Populo, the Mass, Introductory Rites. Leo et Spiritui Sancto. The Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, sorry. Ordo Misei Cum Populo. Entrance Song Antiphon. According to the day or feast. Greeting. In the name of the Father, in nomine Patris, and the Son, et Filii, and of the Holy Spirit, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. The grace of our Lord, gratia Domini Nostri, Jesus Christ, Jesu Christi, and the love of God, et Caritas Dei, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, et Communicatio Sancti Spiritus be with you all, sit cum omnibus vobis, and with your spirit, et cum spiritu tuo.
In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. I'm not gonna try it. I don't know how to read notes, sorry. The sprinkling of holy water may be optionally celebrated here. The asperges, meaning outside of Easter tide, and the vidi quam, Easter tide, are given in the appendix, pages 40 and 41. If celebrated, the penitential rite that follows next is then skipped. We'll be right back. I'm gonna try to find how to sing that entrance song. All right. <clears throat> I'm having a bad day today. Yeah. Oh, it's new. <laughs> okay. Crawling my way back from the bottom. Gotta read Latin. Professio fidei tridentiana. Tridentina. Tri oh, tridentina. Oh, well, that's a good one. Today is December 4th, 2023. We're only four days into the... Something about December 6th. I don't know. Some feast day. Yeah, something's coming up. It's all good. Three days to feast day. Hang in there, people. Me included. Professio Fidei Tridentina. Creed. I need a creed. Of Pope Pius the Fourth. Can you sing creed for me? Uh-uh. Hello. Is it you? Um, mm -hmm. No, not that one. The Professio Fidei Tridentina, also known as the Creed of Pope Pius IV, is one of the four authoritative creeds of the Catholic Church. It is issued on November 13, 1565, by Pope Pius IV in his bull, Injunctum Nobis. Injunctum Nobis. Under the auspices of Tr Council of Trent, which served between 1545 and 1563, it was substantially modified slightly after the First Vatican Council of 1869 and 1870. To bring it in line with the dogmatic definitions of the Council, the major, major intent of the creed was to clearly define the Catholic faith against Protestantism. At one time, it was used by theologians as an oath of loyalty to the church and to reconcile converts to the church. But it is rarely used these days, for it is the longest. It's really long. It's going to probably take me 20 minutes. I, put your name here, I, Amy, For, with a firm faith, believe and profess each and everything which is contained in the creed which the Holy Roman Church maketh use of, to wit, 
I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom. All things were made, whom for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was also crucified. For us, suffered under Pontius Pilate and was buried. And on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, and who spoke through the prophets and one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess one baptism. For the forgiveness of sins, and I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and all other observances and constitutions of that same church I firmly admit to and embrace. I also accept the Holy Scripture according to that sense which the Holy Mother, the Church, hath held and doth hold, and to whom it belongeth to judge the true sense and interpretations of the Scriptures. Neither will I ever take and interpret them otherwise than according to the unanimous consent. Of the fathers. I also profess that there are truly and properly seven sacraments of the new law instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord and necessary for the salvation of mankind, though not all are necessary for everyone, to wit, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance. Extreme unction, holy orders, and matrimony, and that they confer grace 
and that the and that of these baptism confirmation and holy orders cannot be repeated without sacrilege i also receive and admit the accepted and approved ceremonies of the catholic church in the solemn administration of the aforesaid sacraments i embrace and accept each and everything which has been defined and declared in the holy council of trent concerning original sin and justification i got to read that i profess likewise that in the mass there is offered to god a true proper and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead and that in the most holy sacrament of the eucharist there is truly really and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our lord jesus christ and that a conversion takes place of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood which conversion the catholic church calls transubstantiation transubstantiation i also confess that under either species alone christ is received whole and entire and a true sacrament i steadfastly hold that there is a purgatory and that the souls therein detained are helped by the suffrages of the faithful likewise that the saints reigning together with christ are to be honored and invoked and they and that they offer prayers to god for us and that their relics are to be venerated i most firmly assert that the images of christ of the mother of god ever virgin and also of other saints ought to be kept and retained and that due honor and veneration is to be given them i also affirm that the power of indulgences was left by christ in the church and that the use of them is most wholesome to christian people i acknowledge the holy catholic apostolic roman church as the mother and teacher of all churches and i promise true obedience to the bishop of rome successor to st peter prince of the apostles and vicar of jesus christ i likewise undoubtedly receive and profess all other things delivered defined and declared by the sacred canons and general councils and particularly by the holy council of trent and by the ecumenical council of the vatican particularly concerning the primacy of the roman pontiff and his infallible teaching i condemn reject and anathematize all things contrary thereto and all heresies which the church 
hath condemned, rejected, and anathematized. This true Catholic faith, outside of which no one can be saved, which I now freely profess, and to which I truly adhere, I do so profess and swear to maintain, inviolate, and with firm constancy, with the help of God until the last breath of life. And I shall strive as far as possible that the same faith be shall be held, taught, and professed by all those over whom I have charge. I, Amy, do so pledge, promise, and swear, so help me God, and these holy gospels of God. The end. I'm going to have to read all that in Latin. 1933. Third edition. Floriel. And also, Manuale Sacradotum, Snyder Joseph, 1867. Bookmark. Third one. En Symbolorum by Denzinger in 2001. Ew, nice. Okay, we'll be back. Take a slight break. All right, playtime, a day in the life. What's happening with y'all? What's today? Do you know what today is? Tuesday. Say Tuesday. Tuesday. December. December. Uh, five. Five. Do you know how? Five. Show me five fingers. <gasps> Good boy. What are we playing right now? Hello, Mr. Teddy Bear. Oh, it's Burlington the Bear. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Burlington the Bear. How are you feeling today? Oh, I'm quite well. Can't explain, you know. Uh, food. Spectacles has been in box for bringing me a book. I know, I got a food. So, well, that's good. Let me check you. How's that feeling? Teddy? Teddy? How's that? Oh, it's a bit of wine. A bit of a nose, eh? He put it up there on my car. <gasps> Lego car? You have a Lego car? No, it's a food. Oh, that's food. What food is it? Green food? Uh-huh. Muffin? Can I get a muffin? Uh-huh. Can Green I get food. a muffin? Uh-huh. Hi, muffin. Hi, huggy mm. muffin. Ring, 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 ring. Hello? What's up? Hello, it's Gabby. Hi, Gabby. Oh, you want to chat? What do you want to chat about? Numbers. Numbers? Which one? Nine. 
What's up? We're, you know, doing some refix on the house. So what do you think about the mortgage nowadays? Huh? They're getting gouging everybody. Don't you think? No need for anything in some down derivatives market going down. And everybody are going down. What do you think? Huh? 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 Bonos. All right. Thank you. Hot tip. I got a hot tip. Oh, we got mail. Look, baby. We have mail. What's in the mail? Come on in and have some fun. I'll be careful, please. We are your friends and we love when you're here. That's the same thing. Build a house? Huh? You want to build a house? Uh huh. You know what I want to use to build a house? I want to uh, use no! only three things. You know what they are? Hello? Yes, Gabby. No, that's not Gabby. Who's that? That's Quacky Duck. Ow. <laughs> I still have the doctor in my ear. I can't get the doctor out of my ear. Okay, bye-bye, doctor. Are we done with doctor? Bye, doctor. See you later. We don't need you right now. We're not sick. What? Oh, 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 don't fall down, don't fall down. Don't, yeah, okay, be careful. Good job. You wanna fix it? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to fix it? You want music? Ooh, it has music when you turn the wheels. Bicycles where it's powered by the bike wheels. Wouldn't that be smart? I 
laughing, so. Could be a little power bank generator, you know, stored in the, the bike. You can do all the things that you do on a motorcycle. You can have radios on motorcycles. They have headlights. Probably charge your phone if you bike hard enough. We were at the museum, you know. We rode the bike. And they had all kind of different uh, light bulbs. You know there's different kind of light bulbs? There's fluorescent light bulb. Hey, Good puppy. You wanna lick my paw? You wanna lick my paw? Lick my paw! Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> I'm a puppy. Look, look, I can dance. Mr. Bear, where are you? Where are you, Mr. He's running around. <laughs> Mr. Bear! Oh, 
wait, who's this? <laughs> Hi. Who are you? Hello. Oh, do you have to hit record? Let's see. One. Are you ready to do the ABC dance? Okay, let's, let's do it. A. Yes, it is. You don't want to do it, do you? No. You don't want to get hurt, do we? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's the whole point of training. Are we going to get hurt? Yes. Ow! <laughs>
I like green donuts because I'm green. Get ready. Get ready. Hello. No. Take a break, okay? You keep fixing the house. Good boy. I'm gonna go take a water break. You want some water? No. Water's good. Water breaks are good. Gray? 
this one. Oh, they're both blue. Look at that. Isn't that cute? Look at this face with the collar. How about that? Oh, chicken. <laughs> Six. Six. Very good. Mukon.
and it just spelled save in the middle of this.
No. No. Drop it thunder! Can't see. Publisher's Preface <clears throat> A few words need to be said about reissuing Father Gerald Colleton's The Prophets in Our Times. First of all, it is now 33 years since the book was first published, and the Father Colleton had an idea that the world was then witnessing the events foretold by the prophecies he had recorded. The colossal occurrence of that time being, of course, World War II, the greatest struggle the world has ever seen. Yet, from our view, we realize those prophecies he presented and interpreted have not been fulfilled. Then, too, there appeared in 1970 Mr. Yves <clears throat> Dupont's book Catholic Prophecy, The Coming Chastisement, which, for its brevity and command of the significance of the prophecy's meaning, has no equal in any book that I am familiar with. And certainly the present volume will not replace his or eliminate the need of students' interest in the subject. Reading Catholic Prophecy, the book, as well. Bookmark. Father Cullerton's work traces many of the same prophecies as Mr. Dupont's and in general restricts itself to the same era, however. Father's book is considerably larger and more comprehensive in its coverage, for which reason mainly we have thought to reprint it. Added to this, however, is the general accuracy of the Prophets of Our Times book. Despite Father's penchant for interpreting the prophecies as being fulfilled by the events of his day. Probably the most provocative characteristic of this book, especially to readers who have had no introduction to the subject, is the cohesiveness of the various prophecies. How they coalesce, dovetail, agree and complement one another. This, despite the fact that we they were made in different centuries, from the fourth down to our own. 
And at times, generally, when transportation and communication were very poor, a factor which would preclude collusion. This is virtually unthinkable given the conditions. The question arises then: Do these prophecies taken together form a body of knowledge, or even a quasi body of knowledge? The author certainly treats them as if they do. Still, the contemporary reader will ask, "Well, do they?" This, I believe, each person will have to answer for himself, based largely upon the interior evidence of the prophecies themselves. For my own part, I think they do. This judgment, however, is more mature than perhaps most readers will be able to make, and comes from reading in various books prophecies other than those appearing here or in any recent editions. All of which prophecies I feel fit the general pattern laid down by Father Culleton in the Prophets, Prophets of Our Times book. Moreover, it has been my good fortune to come across a number of books from which he draws his materials. Some of these over a hundred years old. The impression which I, which a reading of these older books gives most decidedly, is that people in those days were just as interested as the prophecies as we are today. The writers of those books were extremely careful to cite their sources and would be judged by their works as sane, sensible, and careful academicians, giving most scrupulously their own sources and filling in many details about the lives of the various saintly prophets. In this regard, I am thinking especially of the Christian trumpet bookmark. The present author, moreover, has not excerpted all that he could from these books, but rather has selected only the most apropos material. We are to grant that this group of prophecies forms a sort of corpus of knowledge. Body. What are the general outlines of this information? Here, I believe we. All owe a great debt to Father Culleton for his grouping of this information into two general categories: the first of which he covers in his present book, and the second, which he treats as, and which he treats in his book, Reign of Antichrist, 1951. Also being reissued concomitantly with the present book, and. One which the reader, if he is interested in this subject at all, will surely want to pursue, in order to flesh out, flesh out his view or perspective of the events. In general, the information covered by his two books concerns the time of Antichrist, with a capital A, on one hand, and the time generally which precedes it, on the other hand. The time preceding Antichrist might well refer to as the quote. Dress rehearsal, period. Dress rehearsal, unquote. Period. The, the period. Now, the time of the Antichrist will be the most distressing the world has ever seen, and the Bible is very explicit in specifying that his reign will last three and one half years, or forty-two months, or one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Three ways of saying the same thing. These figures are given in several different places in the Bible. Here we go. Daniel twelve verse seven, twelve verse eleven, Apocalypse or Revelations chapter eleven verse two to three, chapter thirteen verse fourteen. In order that it would seem 
we do not in any way understand them symbolically. The reason for this is obvious. God wishes to console the good people of that time with the knowledge of previously when their great tribulation will end in truly a touching measure of his mercy toward frail humanity shortly after the end of shortly after the end of antichrist comes the et the end of time the most promised event in the bible otherwise referred to as quote the day of the lord capital d capital l dl the day of the lord which is the time not to be longed for quote woe to them that desire the days woe to them that desire the day of the lord little d capital l says the prophet amos in chapter 5:18 in the view of st thomas aquinas the day of the lord immediately precedes the dl immediately precedes the g j general judgment at that time our lord returns in triumph and in judgment as the lord of lords and king of kings now the whole affair is so important it would seem considering both the biblical prophecies and the saintly prophecies which father colleton concerns himself with you know the saintly prophecies that is not that it is not sufficient for it simply to happen once rather it seems we are to have a foretaste of both the agony and the joys of that later set of events during a time which serves very much as a warning to the world this period is dominated by the personage personage of gm great monarch this period is dominated by the great this period is dominated by the personage of the great monarch the world in his time enters a severe period of tension three types social tension political tension and religious tension which eventuates a terrific military struggles none of which appear to be armageddon it might be added the final result being the worldwide triumph of this catholic prince under whom and through whose influence virtually the entire world becomes catholic during his reign there is unprecedented peace prosperity and progress but toward the end of his time the stiff-necked hard-hearted men of that day descend once more into widespread sin and shortly after the great monarch antichrist makes his appearance just as our lord at his second coming the great monarch is a king of kings and lord of lords with little l's and little k's who rules in justice and brings an unheralded in latin it's called 
Pax Christiana, P-A-X. Thus, it would seem forming a, quote, type of Christ, unquote, in his second coming. Such, then, is a rough delineation of the events recorded in Father Culleton's two books, which are not, whether or not it is valid, the reader can judge for himself. A number of other questions arises in this regard, which might be considered briefly. Quote, are we in the great apostasy mentioned by St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? One encounters among troubled Catholics today a good deal of mention of this. The answer is that it would seem we are not. But in view of the, quote, dress rehearsal, unquote, concept elucidated above, we are most certainly experiencing a serious loss of faith on the part of a large portion of the Catholic population. Yet many are still holding fast, despite the confusion rampant in the church. When the reader has read the prophecies contained here, we, he will begin to see that the most likely the great apostasy will come after the reign of the great monarch and refers to the general falling away after his time. It might well, it might well be asked, quote, are we close to the end of time or to the time of Antichrist, end quote. Many authoritative writers think that we are. Personally, I would not discount the possibility, especially since some of the conditions are now fulfilled and it takes little imagination to see how others could be. In this regard, writers and even saints have been mistaken in the past, for which reason none of us should be too hasty to say yes to this question. Referring to the end of time, our Lord himself told us, quote, but of that day or hour no man knoweth, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father, unquote, from Mark thirteen thirty-two. Nevertheless, we are certain that it will come and come, quote, as a thief in the night, unquote. St. Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, St. Paul tells us that our Lord will return, quote, in a very little while, unquote. Hebrews ten thirty seven. St. Paul tells us that, quote, one day with the Lord, with the Lord, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter 3.8 From which we can safely infer that the present Christian era is not going to be all that long, if indeed we are close to the end of time, or at least close to 
or beginning the, quote, dress rehearsal, unquote, period. It would seem providential that these prophecies would be made known now on so widespread a basis, enabling those who thus desire to be advised on the matter. Quote, have some of the prophecies about the first of these two periods in fact been fulfilled, unquote? If you're asking that, the answer to this question is yes. Some of these prophecies seem to be coming true, notably the widespread loss of faith, confusion in the church, even in the matters of faith, <clears throat> bankruptcies, in the democracies in Western Europe. This is to say their inability to cope with the problems of labor, inflation, political unrest, social injustice, international finance, and simple, quote, planning for the future, unquote. Already, we are hearing more and more about an imminent eruption in Italy, which will be one of the hallmarks of the period of the great monarch. Given the space to develop the notion in a substantive way, the citing additional prophecies to this effect, I believe I could quite easily support this answer. Despite the fact that these prophecies taken together form a compelling tract, we must remember that they are not dogma. That is, do not concern de fide pronouncements of the church. They are simply given for our instruction to help us, it would seem, in a trying time. If some good Catholics chose not to accept them or chose to lay little stock in them, it is not the duty of any one of us to coerce his mind into assent. As if that were possible. These prophecies are not needed for salvation, but they may indeed be needed for sanity and certainly for hope by some or many of us. Indeed, there is a great deal of hope in the personages of the great monarch and the angelic pastor, AP, a holy pope mentioned here. They are truly romantic figures in the best sense of the word. And so much after the style of God, who in his action among men tends to be both simple and surprising, subtle, and irresistible. In his own good time, surely, something like the events predicted in this book are bound to occur. They are, as it were, almost wrapped up, part and partial, in the confusion of the world's current life. With the development of that confusion, so trying on us all, is bound to emerge the solution from a most unpredictable quarter. Hence, the enemies of God and of his holy church will not know where or how to prepare themselves to resist successfully the advent of the great monarch. 
God will nurture this man in his own manner, who, the prophecy seemed to indicate, will not even be known to himself until a late moment. When that man finally takes the field, it will be all over for the enemies of God. Despite their numerical superiority and seeming greater power, with these with these thoughts in mind, we are pleased to reissue the prophets in our times, and hope that it will bring enlightenment and consolation to those who read it. Signed, Thomas A. Nelson. June twenty sixth, nineteen seventy four, Feast of Saints John and Paul. Preface, Feast of Easter, nineteen forty three, my modest attempt to put before modern readers. Many prophecies which their forefathers used to read has been very graciously accepted, as the orders for copies of the book have exceeded my supply. To pre- I present the second edition. Readers of the first have expressed regret that the prophecies were not arranged chronologically, nor indexed. I have been guided by the constructive criticism. By this constructive criticism. I am sure that there are still private prophecies, which have escaped both me and my past readers. If any new reader knows of any such, I would greatly appreciate a communication from him. This would make a third edition as complete as humanly possible. There has been, of course, some destructive criticism. Some dis- destructive criticism. It has come chiefly from those who read only the title of the book. To those and to all, I would say, quote, if we arrange our things spiritual, on the presumption that we are dealing with true prophets and living in the times forecast, but our things material, as though. It were a waste of time to read this book. We shall find ourselves pleasing God, and not take and not making fools out of ourselves before sensible men. Unquote. There are many individuals and institutions to whom I am greatly indebted for their kind help in this work. On them, I pray God to bestow appropriate blessings. Come, Holy Ghost, Creator blessed, and in our hearts take up Thy rest. Come, with Thy grace and heavenly aid, to fill the hearts which Thou has made. O Holy Ghost, th- through Thee alone know we the Father and the Son. Be this our. Never-ending creed, that thou dost from them both proceed. Introductory chapter, p 
preamble. In all times of international, or at least widespread strife, a number of oracles are brought off musty shells and the scriptures are searched to learn, if possible, the divine reasons behind it and its likely outcome. In all such times, there is a conflict, more or less pronounced, between good and evil. Hence often the question, is this the time of Antichrist? Or at least, is it a combat of such tremendous importance in the history of the Christian church that it has merited pre-mention in the scriptures and the expressions of long-buried wise or holy men? Footnote for scriptures. We feel that the present hour is a phase of the solemn story of humanity predicted by Christ. A quote from Pius Twelfth. Pope Pius Twelfth, I assume, radio address, uh, 1940, November 24th. In our days, there progresses a war, the equal of which has never before disgraced the earth. It is merely the natural development of war science and the interdependence of nations that makes each succeeding conflict more terrible and extended than its predecessor. Hmm? Or is it, or is this war more sinister because it is a strife per excellence, quote unquote, of error against truth. We may feel quite sure that the present world engagement lacks the signs for the end of the world. There is no reason to suspect any modern warlord of being the Antichrist. Could the struggle be a type or symbol or even a, an announcement of the Antichrist? Scripture tells us to expect many an Antichrist before the real one comes. Many there have been, are, and doubtless will be. For a certainty, there are anti-Christian leaders and armies in the field today, so we must admit that this war comes under the scripture text. Quote, there shall be many false Christs, but the end is not yet. But to go farther and say that this conflict is an announcement of the near approach of the Antichrist is another question. Page 10. There are gathered together between the covers of this book a number of scripture texts. Some of them certainly, and others probably, refer to the latter, but not necessarily the last days of the world. To these have been added many sayings of saints and sages which bear on things to come after their day, yet apparently before the appearance of Antichrist. 
the author has divided the prophecies used herein into two groups: the public prophecies, you know, scriptures and the fathers, scripture and the fathers, and the private prophecies, private prophecies, as found in the apocrypha, and the works of pious or learned men. The whole collection quotes over two hundred seers. The extracts, the extracts, are arranged more or less chronology, chronologically, chronologically, so that the development of the ideas concerning the latter days may be more apparent. The prophecies are prefaced by an exhaustive topical index and the author's concordance of them. With this in mind. The gentle reader will realize that the author possesses not the gift of prophecy, nor does he profess even reasonable certainty of his own interpretations or correlations. On the contrary, he furnishes in this texts, in his texts to the reader, and reminds all that where the you see universal church is silent, each. May draw his own conclusions, provided he draw with caution. The prophetic texts recorded are of certain divine origin, only in the instances where they form parts of sacred scripture or tradition, and the interpretations of these are matters of faith, only in those few instances where the church was. Where the church has given the meaning, all other oracles found herein are to be classed as private. Some of them are said by their authors to have been revelations from God, either to the author himself or to one or other pious or saintly person known to the author. Others of them have come down in the tradition of one or other nation, and no doubt present what the national bards were given to understand by the early national saints. The remainder are rather commentaries on oracles. They are by authors who do not. Profess to have had revelations, but who were wise men and who based their ideas of the future on Scripture, the fathers, the saints, and an intimate knowledge of history, the effects of evil, and the capabilities of human ingenuity. Page eleven. Without going into the various arguments in favor of or against the authenticity, either of the present documents which contain these private oracles, or the oracles themselves, the writer has felt justified in using all those quotations which seem not to contradict the teaching of the church, and which, at the same time, have merited acceptance. In the works of other authors better equipped than he to pass on their merit, 
let us say this. We are, unless otherwise noted, oracles which have, for generations, intrigued the children of earth. Yay! This is such a December to remember. My son gives me a book. I love it. Today is December 13, 2023. Till we have faces. <gasps> Which, <clears throat> of course, reminds me of the beatitude, right? Blessed are the pure heart, for they will see the face of God. Oh, my. C.S. Lewis has so many books. Wow. All right, I'm just going to read the titles because I just love his books. Let's see. The Pilgrim's Regress. Really? The Problem of Pain. P-A-I-N. The Screwtape Letters and Screwtape Proposes a Toast. There's a second book? Broadcast Talks. Yeah, we heard those on doodles. The Abolition of Man. Yeah, I'm not trying to abolish myself yet at all. But they're trying to abolish me, right? So, Christian Behavior. Yeah, I guess I should read that. Beyond Personality. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm okay on that right now. The Great Divorce. Nobody wants to read about that. Fractional. George MacDonald, an anthology. What is that? Farm? Farming, maybe? Miracles. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, okay. I got something for y'all. I got something for y'all. Miracles. Transposition and their addresses. You know, I have not heard any of these titles so far except for that one right there. Mere Christianity. Now that one I've heard with screw tape, right? Okay. Surprised by joy. It's an actual book. The shape of my early year. That's his name. That's the name of his wife. Reflections on the Psalms, right? We should do that along with 150 with the rosary center. I was thinking of doing rosary on threads, like in Latin, and we can do all kinds of languages. The World's Last Night and Other Essays. Ooh, eschatology. The Four Loves. He was a bit dry on that, wasn't he? We'll go back to that. Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Ooh, interesting. Poems. Just, that's it? Just one word for the title? Yeah. Poems by C.S. Lewis. Of other worlds, essays and stories. Oh, he has other stories? Letters of C.S. Lewis. Narrative poems. A mind awake. An anthology of C.S. Lewis. On stories and other essays on literature. Spirits in bondage. A cycle of lyrics. <gasps> that would go perfect with our lyrical sessions, right? Uh, the Business of Heaven. Daily readings from C.S. Lewis. <gasps> That's just like the rounds with fiat. Oh, I know, right? Present concerns. Mm-hmm. <gasps> the man has a diary. No way. What's it called? All my road before me. The Diary of C.S. Lewis, 1922 to 1927. He was born in 1922? No. 
that was just about his life in those five short years from 1922 to 1927. I'm guessing there's no way he lived five years. Do you have anything for children? Yes. Seven of my favorite books. Under one title, The Chronicles of Narnia. Read them in order. Sure. Wait. Yeah, well, this is not the order of the story, but this is the order in which they were published, I guess. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote that first. Prince Caspian. Oh, I love that. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Silver Chair. The Horse and His Boy. The Magician's Nephew, which is really the first. It's a prequel. It's a prequel. And then The Last Battle. Right? They only made a movie of like, they made endless movie of the first one, then the second one, then the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and then they stopped. Nobody ever makes movies of the last four, which are like the best ones. Any other fictions? Apparently, yes. Six of them, which I've never heard before. One, Out of the Silent Planet. Ooh, Stella. Perilendra. Is that a new word? It is to me. Perilendra. Third, that hideous strength. Mm. Till we have faces, a myth retold. <gasps> That's the one we're reading. That's the one we're reading on the bottom of the list. What's after it? The Dark Tower and other stories. <gasps> he must have done that when he was in the Inklings with Mr. Tolkien. <gasps> Boxen. Right? We keep hearing him about Boxen, the original, the imaginary world of the young C.S. Lewis. Wow. I just heard from the Catholic, uh, uh, what was it, the Catholic Truth Podcast, and they were saying, we're going to do a whole C.S. Lewis thing. And I was like, no way. And then my son hands me this book. Thank you, Saint my, I, I, Angel Michael. 1956 by C.S. Lewis, copyrighted PTE Limited, renewed in 1984 by author Owen Barfield. Barfield, where? <gasps> We're going to Florida. Permissions Department, Harcourt. Sea Harbor Drive, Orlando, Florida. It's in. Does anybody know what C stands for? Clive. Clive Staples Lewis. Till we have faces. It's a harvest book, people. Psyche. No, Psyche. Oh, which means goddess. Oh, fiction. Cupid. Fiction. Title. Printed in the United States of America. E-E-D-D-C-C-B-B-A-A-Z-Y. To Joy. David Mann. <gasps> That's her last name. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't it? Ooh, take a picture of this. It looks Egyptian. Roman numerals number one. Chapter one. I'm going to take pictures of this. I'll take pictures of this for you guys. Okay, great. All right. Okay, cool. That's the introduction. We will be right back. Wait, wait, wait. Read the back cover. Okay. This timeless tale of two princesses, one beautiful and one unattractive, and of the struggle between sacred and profane love, is C.S. Lewis's reworking of the classical myth of Cupid and Psyche, and one of the most endearing pieces of fiction, the most significant and triumphant work that Lewis has yet produced, says who? New York Herald Tribune. 
In Mr. Lewis's sensitive hands, the ancient myth retains its fascination while being endowed with new meaning, new depths, new terrors. Who said that? Saturday Review. We like Saturday mornings. (laughs) New York Times says, by successfully bringing diverse elements into imaginative unity, till we have faces, exerts far beyond most novels that combination of awfulness, wonder, and attraction, which is what the word fascination in its Latin form really meant. Oh, thank you, New York Times. By the way, did you know that C.S. Lewis, who lived between 1898, during the war, to 1963, gained international renown for his impressive array of works, both popular and scholarly, a science fiction trilogy, children's books, a novel, poetry, literary criticism, and numerous books on Christianity. Among his most celebrated achievements are Out of the Silent Planet. Yeah, we just heard that. The Chronicles of Narnia. We love that. The Screwtape Letters. We haven't finished that. The Four Loves. We just started that. And Surprised by Joy. Praying for Joy Day. I love my Joy Day. Praying for Joy Day. Cover design by Michelle Weatherby. Cover illustrations based on the photograph by Paul Himmel, with two M's. (laughs) From California to New York, San Diego to the East 26th Street, we bring you a Harvest Book by Hardcourt, Inc. Thank you. We will write back to the, the book. Hello, welcome back. Today is December 16, 2023. Theme, Immaculate Conception. <clears throat> An excerpt from Notre Dame University. The Immaculate Conception refers to the specific grace of Mary's own origin. I'm reading from a pamphlet I got from St. Elizabeth Church this Christmas season with a beautiful painting of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And on the back it reads, The Immaculate Conception refers to the specific grace of Mary's own origin. From the moment of her conception in the womb of her mother, Anne, Mary was preserved from all stain of sin to prepare her for the vocation of bearing the word of God to the world. The figure of Mary has always been understood to be a singular example of holiness, one of the seven ecumenical councils of the early church was the Council of Ephesus in 431, which formally canonized the designation of Mary as 
Theotokos, Mother of God. Not just Christotokos, Mother of Christ. This title is understandably a bit mind boggling. How can God, who has no birth in time, who is eternal, always is, and always was, have a mother? Hmm. As mystifying as this title may be, the church asserts that Mary truly is the Theotokos. From its earliest origin, the church knew that Mary was a unique figure. The teaching. The teaching of the Immaculate Conception was formerly proclaimed as dogma binding on all capital C Catholics. In 1854, by Pope Pius IX, in his papal bull, Ineffabilis Deus, or, quote, Ineffable God, unquote. Interestingly, Mary immaculately conceived, M I C, was named patroness of the United States in 1846, eight years prior. This is a beautiful example. Of the sensus fidei, or the sense of the faithful, the role of commonly held belief of Catholic faithful in helping the Church hold onto the truth. The end. Which leads us into, I was like, what is census fidei? Which leads us into the International Theological Commission, article dated 2014, census fidei, meaning the sense of the faithful in the life of the church. Um, it's in its here's a preliminary note for you in its Queen Quenium of 2009 to 2014, the International Theological Commission studied the nature of census fidei and its place in the life of the church. The work took place in a subcommission prescribed by Monsignor Paul. McPartland, McPartland, and composed of the following members: Father Sergei Tomes Bonino, O.P., Secretary General; uh, Senor Sara Butler, M.S.B.T., Reverend Antonio Castellano, S.D.B.
Reverend Adbert Denox, Monsignor Tomislav Ivanchik, Bishop John Lenson, and Reverend Leonard Santidi King Kupu, Dr. Thomas Soogdin, and Monsignor Jarzi Zigmik. The general discussions of this theme were held in numerous meetings of the subcommission and during the plenary sessions of the same International Theological Commission held in Rome between 2011 and 2014. The text, Sensus Fidei in the Life of the Church, was approved in Forma Specifica by the majority of members of commission by a written vote, by a written vote, and the, this was then submitted to its president, Cardinal Gerhard L. Müller, Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, who authorized its publication. Introduction is pretty long. Okay. We will. I guess we can read the introduction to get an idea of what it's about and then read that thing and then go back to its comments. Okay. Introduction point one. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit of Truth who comes from the Father, unquote, and bears witness to the Son, John fifteen twenty six. all of the baptized participate in the prophetic office of Jesus Christ. The faithful and true witness, Revelations three fourteen. They are to bear witness to the gospel and to the apostolic faith in the church and in the world. The Holy Spirit anoints them and equips them for that high calling, conferring on them a very personal and intimate knowledge of the faith of the church. In the first letter of St. John, the faithful are told, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. The anointing that you received from Christ abides in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. His anointing teaches you about all things. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, 27. Point number 2. As a result... The faithful 
have an instinct for the truth of the gospel, which enables them to recognize and endorse authentic Christian doctrine and practice, and to reject what is false. That supernatural instinct, intrinsically linked to the gift of faith, received in the communion of the church, is called the sensus fidei, and it enables Christians to fulfill their prophetic calling. In his first. Angelus' address. Pope Francis quoted the words of a humble, elderly woman he once met. Quote, "If the Lord did not forgive everything, the world would not exist." Unquote. And he commented with admiration quote, that. Is the wisdom which the Holy Spirit gives. Unquote. The woman's insight is a striking manifestation of the sensus fidei, which, as well as enabling a certain discernment with regard to the things of faith, fosters true wisdom and gives rise, as here. To proclamation of the truth, it is clear, therefore, that the sensus fidei is a vital resource for the new evangelization to which the Church is strongly committed in our time. Point number three: as the theological concept. The sensus fidei refers to two realities, which are distinct, though closely connected. The proper subject of one, being, the church. One Timothy three fifteen quote, pillar, and bulwark, of the truth. Unquote. While the subject of the other is the individual believer who belongs to the church through the sacraments of initiation, and who, by means of regular celebration of the Eucharist, in particular, participates in her faith and life. On the one hand. The sensus fidei refers to the personal capacity of the believer, within the communion of the church, to discern the truth of faith. On the other hand, the sensus fidei refers to a communal and ecclesial reality. The instinct of faith of the church herself. By which she recognizes her Lord, and proclaims His word. The sensus fidei 
is a sense, innocence, is reflected in the convergence of the baptized in a lived cohesion to a doctrine of faith, or to a to an element of Christian praxis, p r a x i s, like an axis. Like pro proxies, okay, p r a x i s, this convergence or consensus plays a vital role in the church. The consensus fidelium is a sure criterion for determining whether a particular doctrine or practice. Belongs in the apostolic faith. In the present document, we use the term "sensus fidei fidelis" to refer to the personal aptitude of the believer to make an accurate discernment in the matters of faith, and "sensus fidei." Fidelium, to refer to the church's own instinct of the faith. Sensus fidei fideliis, sensus fidei fideliim. Got it. Is an um. You is they um we um. Okay, got it. Um. <coughs> um. According to the context, sensus fidei refers to either the former or the latter, and in the latter case, the term sensus fidelium is also used. Got it. Point number four: the importance of sensus fidei. In the life of the church was strongly emphasized by the Second Vatican Council, banishing the caricature of an active hierarchy and a passive laity, and in particular, the notion of a strict separation between the teaching church. Ecclesia docens, and the learning church, Ecclesia discens. The council taught that all the baptized participate in their own particular way in the three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. In particular, it taught that Christ fulfills his prophetic office not only by means of the hierarchy, but also via the laity. <clears throat> Point number five. In the reception and application of the council's teaching on this topic, however. Many questions arise, especially in relation to controversies 
regarding various doctrinal or moral issues. What exactly is the sensus fidei and how can it be identified? What are the biblical sources for this idea? And how does the sensus fidei function in the tradition of the faith? How does the sensus fidei relate to the ecclesiastical magisterium of the Pope and the bishops and to theology? What are the conditions for an authentic exercise of the sensus fidei? Is the sensus fidei something different from the majority opinion of the faithful in a given place or time? Or if so, how does it differ from the latter? All these questions require answers if the idea of the sensus fidei is to be understood more fully and used more confidently by the church today. Last point in this introduction. Point number six. The purpose of the present text is not to give an exhaustive account of the census fidei, but simply to clarify and deepen some important aspects of this vital notion in order to respond certain issues, particularly regarding how to identify the authentic sensus fidei in situations of controversy, when, for example, there are tensions between the teaching of the magisterium and views claiming to express the sensus fidei. Accordingly, it will first consider the biblical sources for the idea of the sensus fidei and the way in which this idea has developed and functioned in the history and tradition of the church, chapter one. The nature of the sensus fidei fideliis will then be considered, together with the manifestations of the latter in the personal life of the believer, chapter two. The document will then reflect on the sensus fideium, that is, the sensus fidei in the ecclesial form, considering, first, its role in the development of Christian doctrine and practice, then, its relationship to the magisterium and to theology, respectively, and then also, its importance for ecumenical dialogue. Chapter 3. Finally, it will seek to identify dispositions needed for an authentic participation in the sensus fidei. They constitute criteria for a discernment of the authentic sensus fidei and will reflect in some applications of its findings to the concrete life of the church. Chapter 4. All right. 
And that is the end. We'll give a little time for reflection and be back. Thank you for joining us. Chapter 1 The Sensus Fidei In Scripture and Tradition Point 7 The phrase Sensus Fidei is found neither in the Scriptures nor in the formal teaching of the Church until Vatican II. However, the idea that the Church, as a whole, is infallible in her belief, since she is the body and bride of Christ, and that all of her members have an anointing that teaches them, being endowed with the spirit of truth, is everywhere apparent from the very beginnings of Christianity. The present chapter will trace the main lines of the development of this idea. First, in scripture, then in subsequent history of the church. Number one, biblical teaching. A. Faith as response to the word of God. Number eight, throughout the New Testament, faith is the fundamental and decisive response of human persons to the gospel. Jesus proclaims the gospel in order to bring people to faith. We'll be back. Happy Advent, everyone. Today is 2022, December. We're coming to close. Two more weeks, people. Third Sunday before the last. We have next Sunday, the 24th. The next Sunday, the 31st. And that's it. Happy New Year's. All right. So we're going to learn today is the 17th of December. We're going to do a new segment. I just got an inspiration called the Meet and greet segment where we meet a new historical person and greet them. Today I was inspired to look and to read and memorize the aftermath prayers. There's the before mass prayers and the aftermath prayers. And today that led me to the aftermath prayer written by this new meet and greet person of history. He seekius of Alexandria, Romanized as Alexandrius, or Hesychius, Hesychius, the Alexandrian, who was a Greek grammarian who probably in the 5th or 6th century AD compiled the richest lexicon of unusual and obscure Greek words that has survived, probably by absorbing the works of earlier lexicographers. Lexicographers. Beginning of the letter Pi. Detailed by Mark. Greek 622. And where will we be today without Pi? Mm. 
Uh, sorry to interrupt. I'm reading from Wikipedia and they would appreciate a donation, which I totally wholeheartedly would say, please do. Oh, look at this book. I still need to go visit a rare bookstore. Oh my goodness. Look at this book. Uh, I'm going to have to show you guys sometime. Cover. The work entitled Alphabetical Collection of All Words includes more than 50,000 entries, a copious list of particular words, forms, and phrases with an explanation of their meaning, and often with a reference to the author who used them or to the district of Greece where they are, where they were current. Hence, the book is of great value to the student of the ancient Greek dialects. And in the restoration of the text of the gra classical authors, generally, particular of such authors such as Aeschylus, Aeschylus, and Theocritus, Theocritus. Don't let the devil take your happiness away. That is the homily title today. Thank you very much for that note. Anyways, Theocritus, who used many unusual words, Hesychius is important not only for Greek philology, but also for studying lost languages and obscure dialects such as Thracian and in reconstructing Proto-Indo-European. Many of the words that were included in this work are not found in surviving ancient Greek texts. Hesychius' explanations of many epithets, epithets and phrases also reveal many important facts about the religion and social life of the ancients. In a prefatory letter, Hesychius mentions that his lexicon is based on that of Diogenianus. Diogenianus itself extracted from an earlier work by Panthilus, 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 but that he also used similar works by the grammarian Aristarchus of Samothrace, Apion, Heliodorus, and Amerias. Oh, there we are. Americas without the C. Amerias. Before the C came in and others. Okay, great. Hesychius was probably not a Christian. Explanations of words from Gregory Nazianzus and other Christian writers, Glacier Sacra, are later interpolations. The lexicon survives with one deeply corrupt 15th century manuscript, which is preserved in the library of San Marco at Venice. Mark Greek, 622, 5th, 15th century. It was probably printed by Marcus Musurus at the press of Aldus Manutius in Venice in 1514, reprinted in 1520 and 1521 with modest rev revisions. The modern edition has been published under the auspices of the Royal Danish. Oh, we love Danishes. I was thinking, I'm going to look into how to make donuts. And then we could all just like make donuts and bring them for like donuts and coffee after mass. What do you think? Like a bakery, but like you bring your best stuff, 
you know, only. So, because when you learn to cook and nobody wants to eat your stuff, it's hard to keep cooking. <laughs> Just saying. And then you donate them to, the, like, the firehouse, and I'm sure they would appreciate it. Well, you know, whatever you're cooking up that week, day, whatever. Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen. Ooh, copious amounts. Begun by Kirk Latte. Coffee. Coffee. Kirk. Captain. Volume 1, published in 1953. Volume 2, posthumously in 1966 and completed by Peter Allen Hansen and Ian C. Cunningham. What are those people doing in front of my door? Volume 3, 2005. Volume 4, 2009. Okay. I don't know. I saw Alexander and I was like, well, these are all new people that are interesting with a book that looks interesting. But anyways, Greek dictionary, people. Thank you very much. We'll be back. Maybe. Okay, so the aftermath prayer could be a different Hesychius. Could be the Hesychius of Cazorla, first century, Spanish Christian missionary, bishop, martyr, and saint. Martyr! Drink to that. Pee-wee Herman, word of the day. Praise the Lord. Because all it says is a sick use, so it could be his sick use, the Pope martyr. What do you think? Sing with the Spirit. Sing with understanding. It is this. Glorify God with your body and soul. Praise the Lord in his holy places. Praise him in the firmament of his strength. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to the multitude of his greatness. Praise him with the sound of trumpet. Praise him with psaltery and harp. Praise him with timbrel and choir. Praise him with strings and organs. Praise him on high sounding symbols praise him with symbols of joy let every spirit praise the lord you want that in latin sure why not salomnis laudis dei consentus oh family's home salta light spiritus out light et menti a Hoc est glorificate deum et on anima et corpore vestro. Esicus. Okay, so we'll read about the Pope Saint later. Laudate Dominum in Sanctis Ejus. Laudate eum in fermento. Okay, bye. They're coming. Next to your cars. Good morning. Today is December 18, 2023. We've made it to Monday. Praying for our day today, and especially the night. We're reading for Liturgy of the Hours for all our plans this evening and all who will be involved. Night Prayer, Compline. Examination of Conscience Introduction This is, uh, let's see, from ancient times, 
the church has done the custom of celebrating each day the liturgy of the hours. In this way, the church fulfills the Lord's precept to pray without ceasing. At once, offering her prayer to God the Father and interceding for the salvation of the world. Compline is the final prayer of the day to be said before going to bed. Even if this is after midnight, complying, like the other hours, is begun with the verse, O God, come to my assistance, whilst making the sign of the cross, O God, come to my assistance, followed by the glory be to the Father, and on the outside of Lent, the Alleluia. It is praiseworthy to follow the introductory verse with an examination of conscience. It is made in silence or in communal recitation of one of the penitential acts given in the Roman Missal may be used. A suitable hymn is then said or sung. Sing the songs. Lullabies. The psalmodi, sorry, psalmodi, psalmodi, after first vespers of Sundays, Psalm 4 and Psalm 134. After second vespers of Sundays, Psalm 91. Psalms which evoke confidence in God are chosen for the other days. Each day has one psalm except Wednesday and Saturday, which have two psalms. It is always permissible to substitute the Sunday psalms on weekdays. This is particularly helpful for those who may want to recite Compline from Memory. At night prayer on solemnities, everything is said on Sundays after evening prayer one and two, respectively. Each psalm has an antiphon, which is said at the beginning and repeated after the psalm. Kind of like the, you know, the, what they call that, the quiet quote, the chorus of uh, uh, the lyrics, right? After the samadhi, samadhi, there is a short reading and then the responsory, into your hands. Then follows the gospel canticle, canticle of Simeon, Nunc Dimitis, with its antiphon, the culmination of the whole hour. The sign of the cross is made at the beginning of the canticle. The antiphon is said before the canticle and repeated after the canticle. The concluding prayer is said as in the Psalter. After the prayer, the blessing. The Lord grant us a quiet night is said even in individual recitation whilst making the sign of the cross. Finally, 
one of the antiphons of the Blessed Virgin Mary is said or sung during the year Salve Regina, Hail Holy Queen, or the Ave Maria, Hail Mary, is mainly used. In Easter tide, this is always the Regina Celli, Queen of Heaven, rejoice, Alleluia. In Advent and Christmas tide, the Alma Redentoris Mater, Loving Mother of the Redeemer, the Ave Maria, no, sorry, Ave Regina Celorum, Hail, O Queen of Heaven, during Lent. Saturday, Compline. God, come to my assistance. Lord, make haste to help me. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Alleluia. Examination of conscience, as in the front first cover. Here we go. It's very short. Hang in there. A brief examination of conscience may be made in the command uh, in the communal communal in the communal celebration of the office. A penitential rite using the formula of the mass may be used. I confer to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done, and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask, Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord, our God. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Continuing with Sensus Fidei. Number one, biblical teaching. A, faith as a response to the word of God. Verse number eight. Throughout the New Testament, faith is the fundamental and decisive response of human persons to the gospel. Jesus proclaims the gospel in order to bring people to faith. Quote, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news. Paul reminds the early Christians of his apostolic proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in order to renew and deepen their faith. Quote, now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which, through which, also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. Unquote. The understanding of faith in the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament, and especially 
in the faith of Abram, who trusted completely in God's promises. This faith is a free answer to the proclamation of the Word of God, and as such, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit to be received by those who truly believe. 1 Corinthians 12.3 The, quote, obedience of faith, unquote, Romans 1.5, is the result of God's grace, who frees human beings and gives them membership in the church. Galatians 5. Number 9. The gospel calls forth faith because it is not simply the conveying of religious information, but the proclamation of the Word of God. The quote, and the quote, power of God for salvation, unquote, which is truly to be received. It is the gospel of God's grace, the revelation of the mystery of God, and the word of truth. The gospel has a substantial content of the coming of God's kingdom, the resurrection and exaltation of the crucified Jesus Christ, the mystery of salvation, and the glorification by God in the Holy Spirit. The gospel has a strong subject, Jesus himself, the Word of God who sends out his apostles and their followers, and it takes the direct form of inspired and authorized proclamation by words and deeds. To receive the gospel requires a response of the whole person, quote, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mark twelve thirty one. This is the response of faith, which is, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1. Number 10. Faith, quote, unquote, is both an act of belief or trust and also that which is believed or confessed. Fides qua and fides quae, respectively. Both aspects work together inseparably. Since trust is adhesion to a message with in intelligible content, and confession cannot be reduced to mere lip service. It must come from the heart." Unquote. The Old and New Testaments clearly show that the form and content of faith belong together. The form and content of faith belong together. B. 
the personal and ecclesial divisions of faith. Number 11. The scriptures show that the personal dimension of faith is integrated into the ecclesiastical, the, into the ecclesial dimension, both singular and plural forms of the first person are found. Quote, we believe in Galatians 2.16, and I believe in Galatians 2.19-20. In his letter, Paul recognizes the faith of believers as both a personal and an ecclesial reality. He teaches that everyone who confesses that Quote, Jesus is Lord, unquote, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 The Spirit incorporates every believer into the body of Christ and gives him or her a special role in order to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 12.4-27 In the letter to the Ephesians, Confession Of the one and only God is connected with the reality of a life of faith in the church. Follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected? A child in a manger. Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for? How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats became the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? <clears throat> Bringing our gifts for the newborn Savior, all that we have, whether costly or meek, because we believe. Gold for his honor and frankincense for his pleasure and myrrh for the cross he'll suffer. Do you believe? Is this who we've waited for? <clears throat> And how many kings stepped down from their thrones how many lords have abandoned their homes how many greats have become the least how many gods have poured out 
to romance a world that is torn all apart. How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. Divine Radio or podcast. Today is December 20th, 2023, and I have an awesome book I'd like to introduce to you The Epitome of Church and English. <clears throat> it is St. Bede's Ecclesiastical History of England by the Venerable Bede. I'm not even going to bother reading the table of contents for you because your your eyes will just light up. (laughs) So we're just going to go right into it. Beattie's Ecclesiastical History of England, a revised translation with introduction, life, and notes by A.M. Sellar, late vice president of Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, London, George Bell and Sons, 1907. Editor's Preface The English version of the ecclesiastical history in the following pages is a revision of the translation of Dr. Giles, which is itself a revision of the earlier renditions of Stevens. In the present edition, very considerable alterations have been made, but the work of Dr. Giles remains the basis of the translation. The Latin text used throughout is Mr. Plummer's. Since the edition of Dr. Giles appeared in 1842, so much fresh work on the subject has been done, and recent research has brought so many new facts to light. It has been the subject Oh, sorry. So many new facts to light that it has been found necessary to rewrite the notes almost entirely and to add a new introduction. After the appearance of Dr. Plummer's edition of the historical works of Beattie, it might seem superfluous 
for the present at least, to write any notes at all on the ecclesiastical history. The present volume, however, is intended to fulfil a different and much humbler function. There has been no attempt at any original work, and no new theories are advanced. The object of the book is merely to present, in a short and convenient form, the substance of the views held by the trustworthy authorities. It is hoped that it may be found useful by those students who have either no time or no inclination to deal with more important works. Among the books of which most used has been made are Mr. Plummer's edition of the Ecclesiastical History, Monsignor Mayer's and Lumbe's edition of books three and four, Dr. Bright's early English church history, and Dr. Hunt's history of the English church from its foundation to the Norman conquest. Many of the articles in the Dictionary of Christian Biography and the Dictionary of Christian Antiquities. Also, Dr. Mason's Mission of St. Augustine. Dr. Rise's, R-H-Y, Rise's Celtic Britain and a number of other books mentioned in the notes have been consulted. For help received in different ways, I wish to express my gratitude to various correspondents and friends. I am particularly indebted to Mr. Edward Bell, who has kindly revised my proofs and made many valuable suggestions. For information on certain points, I have to thank the Reverend, Miss Reverend, no, the Reverend Charles Plummer, Fellow of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, Professor Lindsay of St Andrews University, Miss Wordsworth, Principal, and Miss Lodge, Vice Principal of Lady Margaret. Hall, Oxford, in a very special sense. I wish to acknowledge my obligations to Miss Patterson, Assistant Librarian at the University Library. St. Andrews, whose unfailing kindness in varying references and supplying me with books has greatly lightened my labours. Introduction and Overview There are, it has been estimated, in England and on the continent, in all about 140 manuscripts of the ecclesiastical history. Of these, four date from the 8th century, the Moore M.S. Cambridge, so-called, because after being sold by auction in the reign of William III, 
it came into the possession of Bishop Moore, who bequeathed it to the University of Cambridge. Cotton Tiberius A, the fourteenth, Cotton Tiberius C, the second, and the Namur M S. A detailed account of these, as well as a great number of other manuscripts, will be found in Mister Plummer's introduction to his edition of Beattie's historical works. He has been the first to collate the four oldest MSs. Besides examining numerous others and collating them in certain passages, he has pointed out that two of the MS dating from the eighth century, the century which Beattie died, the Moore MS. And Cotton Tiberius A the fourteenth pointed to a common original which cannot be far removed from Beattie's autograph. We are thus brought very near to our author, and may have more than, in most cases, the assurances that we have before us what he actually meant to say. The first editions were printed on the continent. The editial princeps is believed to date from the fourteen seventy five. A number of editions followed in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. The first in England was published by Abram Abraham Wheelock at Cambridge in sixteen forty three. Smith's edition in seventeen twenty two marked a new era in history of the book. It was the first critical edition. The texts have been based on the more MS correlated with three others.、Uh, okay, it just seems like they're just going to talk about that. We'll 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 skip the rest of it. Okay, now they're talking about book one. Okay, in book one, should I should I go back? It's just a lot of monastery churches, Kent. Church of Canterbury, the life of. Okay, premium script. Okay, all right, just. Okay, here we go. All right, we'll stick with it. Smith's edition in seventeen twenty two marked a new era in the history of the book. It was the first critical edition. Critical, the text being based on the. M.S. That the more M.S. correlated with three others, it was the first of which two were eighth century M.S.S. and succeeding editors Stevenson in forty eighteen forty one, Giles in eighteen forty two, Hussey in eighteen forty six. The edition in the quote Monumenta Historica Britannica. Eighteen forty-eight, Moberly. Eighteen sixty-nine, Holder. Eighteen eighty-two. Okay, so just been re. A lot of editors have gone at it. Okay, based their work mainly on Smiths. Uh huh. Mister Mayer and Mister Lumby together edited books three and four, with excellent notes in eighteen seventy-eight. Their text reproduces exactly the Moore MS, which they correlated with some other Cambridge MSs. 
Major and Lumbi Excursus the second. In 1896, the Reverend C. Plummer published his edition of Beattie's historical works, the first critical edition since Smith's. It's okay. So then Smith to Plummer. And the very first, which exhibits in an apparatus, criticus, the various endings, the various readings of the MSS on which the text is based. End quote. For the student of Beattie, this admirable book is of the highest value, and the labors of all succeeding editors are made comparatively light. Besides the most minute and accurate work on the text, it contains a copious and interesting commentary on the fullest references to the various sources upon which the editor has drawn. The first translations of the ecclesiastical history is the Anglo-Saxon version. First translation is the Anglo-Saxon version, executed either by Alfred himself or under his immediate supervision. Of this of this version, Doctor Hodgkin says, quote, "As this book had become a kind of classic among churchmen, Alfred allowed himself here less liberty than in some of." His other translations, some letters, epitaphs, and similar documents are omitted, and there is almost complete erasure of the chapters relating to the wearisome Paschal controversy. On other respects, the King's translation seems to be a fairly accurate reproduction of the original work. Mister Plummer, however, finds it very rarely available. For the settlement of minute differences of reading, got it. It's just trying to avoid the stuff. The first modern translation is Thomas Stapleton's fifteen eighty fifteen sixty five, published at Antwerp. It was a controversial work, intended to point out to Queen Elizabeth, quote, in how many and weighty pointers. The pretended. Reformers of the Church have departed from the pattern of that sound and Catholic faith planted first among Englishmen by Holy Saint Augustine, our Apostle, A. A., and his virtuous company, described truly and sincerely by Venerable Bede, so called in all Christendom for his passing virtues. And rare learning, the author of this history. To save Elizabeth's time, in espying out the particulars, the translator has gathered out of the whole history a number of diversities between the pretended religion of the Protestants and the primitive faith of the English Church. If charm and appropriateness of style were the only qualities to be aimed at in a translation, we might well content ourselves with this rendering, which fills with despair. The translator of today, debarred by his date, from writing Elizabethan English. The work was again translated by John Stevens, seventeen twenty-three, 
and a third time with some omissions by W. Hurst in 1814. In 1840, Dr. Giles published a new edition of Stevens' translation with certain alterations, and a second edition of the same volume was published in 1842 and incorporated into the collected works of Beattie, edited by Dr. Giles in 1870. A literal translation by the Reverend L. Gidley was published. The present volume is a revision of the translation of Dr. Giles. A brief analysis of the work may be of some use to the student in keeping distant the different threads of the narrative, as owing to the variety of subjects introduced and the want of strict chronological order. It is difficult to grasp the sequence of events as a coherent whole. The sources from which Beattie draws his material are briefly indicated in the dedication to King Ceolwulf, C E O L W U L F, which forms the preface, and in it he acknowledges his obligations to the friends and correspondents who have helped and encouraged him. For the greater part of the book, C C one to twenty two, which forms the introduction to his real subject. He depends on earlier authors. Here, he does not specify his sources, but indicates them generally as priorum scripta. These authors are mainly Pliny, Solinus, Orosius, Eutropius, and the British historian Gildas. In the story of Germanus and Lupus, he follows closely the life of Germanus by Constantius of Lyons, Prosper of Aquitaine, also supplies him with some materials. When he comes to his main subject, the history of English church, he appears to rely but little upon books. Only very few are referred to here and there, e.g., the life of Saint Frusa, the life of Saint Ethelberg, Adam Nenz's work on the holy places, and the anonymous life of Saint Cuthbert. That some form of analytic records existed before his time, and that these were consulted by him. He may infer from some of his chronological references, C.F. the Third, Roman number one nine, local information with regard to provinces other than Northumbria. He obtains from his correspondences in various parts of England, and these are expressly mentioned in the preface for the history of the Roman mission, ah, and of Kent generally. As well as some particulars with regard to the conversion of other provinces, his chief source is the Church of Canterbury, which alternately possessed, besides oral tradition, written documents relating to the first beginnings of the church. Moreover, Northam, who was the bearer of much important material. Had been to Rome and had permission to search the papal archives. It is, but it is in dealing with the history of Northumbria, as it 
As is natural, that BD's information is most varied and copious. Much of it apparently obtained directly from the eyewitnesses of the events. Much would doubtless be preserved in the records of the Church of Lindisfarne, to which he had access. Perhaps also in his own monastery. We know that the monasteries kept calendars, calendars in which the death days of saints and others were entered, and other records of similar nature, and that these were used as materials for history. Get yourself a new calendar. Catholic Truth has a new one out with Trent Horn. Passing to the history itself, we may trace a division of subjects or periods roughly analogous to the division into books. Book one contains the long introduction and sending of the Roman mission and the foundation of the church. Books two and three, the period of missionary activity and the establishment of Christianity throughout the land. Book four may be said to describe the period of organization. Book five, the English church itself becomes a missionary center, planting the faith in Germany and drawing the Celtic churches into conformity with Rome. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, not so boring. Sounds exciting. Did it make your eyes curl up a little? You made daddy's eyes curl up a little. All right, page four. We'll be right back. Take a break. A dusty fadeless lighty triumphant is Benitin Bethlehem Not to videte Regem Angelorum Benite Adoremus Benite Adoremus Benite Adoremus Dominum Deum de Deo Lumen de lumine, gestant puellae visera. Deum verum genitum non factum benite adoremus. Venite adoremus, venite adoremus, dominum. Cantet nunc loco, chorus angelorum, cantet Celestium Gloria Sol 
Deo gloria venite edo remus venite edo remus venite edo remus Ergo qui natus die, o die na, Jesu tibi gloria patris eterni verbum caro factum venite erdoremus venite Adoremus, benite adoremus, benite adoremus, benite adoremus, Welcome to December 20th, 2023. We are reading from the new word of the day and Bach, the six motets. This is a program, 20 pages from the Emerald Ensemble. Okay. Okay. Just introducing it, we'll come back to read the whole thing. And it is an inaugural concert held Friday, November the 11th, that's 2016, at 8 o'clock p.m., Trinity Episcopal Parish in Seattle, Washington. It is very beautiful by Bach. It is in a language I don't recognize. I might have to go find it out. But the translation in English is beautiful and very poetic. And it's always nice to understand the meaning of the song before we listen to the ensemble. So we'll come back and read it. I'll just do a quick one. The first one. Signet dem er in nues led. BWV 225. Sing to the Lord a new song. The assembly of saints shall praise him. May Israel rejoice in him who made them. May the children of Zion be joyful in their king. They shall praise his name with dance. With drums and harp shall they play to him. God, continue to care for us. For without you is nothing achieved in all matters in all our matters. Therefore, be our shield 
and light. And deceive us not in our hope. Thus will you continue to do. Blessed is he who rigidly and strongly on you and on your grace relies. As a father pities his young little child, so too is the Lord to us all as we, childlike, fear him purely. He knows our weak powers. God knows we are only dust, like the grass to the rake, a flower and falling leaf. The wind only blows over them, and there is no more. So man dies away, his end, it is near to him. Praise the Lord for his deeds, praise him in his great grandeur, all that has breath, praise the Lord, alleluia. Come, Jesus, come, my body is weary, my strength disappears more and more. I yearn for your peace. The bitter path is becoming to me too difficult. Come, come, I want to submit myself to you. You are the right path, the truth, and the life. Thus, I entrust myself into your hands and say, World, good night. Hurries now my life to its end, yet is the soul well prepared. It shall, with its creator, hover. For Jesus is and remains the true path, way to life. I'm going to change it to way. I like way. Fear not, I am with you. Yield not, for I am your God. I strengthen you. I help you also. I uphold you with the right hand of my justice. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Says the Lord, Lord, my shepherd, source of all joys, you are mine. I am yours. No one can separate us. I am yours because you have given your life and your blood for my sake in death. You are mine because I hold you and do not allow you, O oh, my light, out of my heart. Let me, let me reach the place where you, me, and I, you, will lovingly embrace. The Spirit helps our weakness, for we know not what we should pray, nor how is proper, 
but the spirit itself represents us at at our best with inexpressible sighing but he searches our heart he knows what the spirit is thinking for he represents the saints for thus is god pleased you holy fire sweet comforter now help us the happy and consoled in your service steadfast to remain for grief does not deflect us o lord with with your power prepare us and strengthen the flesh reluctance okay that we are here valiantly struggle through death and life to reach you I gotta go get the tune for Alleluia. Okay, great. We'll be back with Jesus, my joy, my heart's pasture. That's a whole nother song. I know, I know. All right, end of page six. Thank you for uh, indulging us. All right, I am so pumped. I just want to bookmark what I just experienced. Uh, today is December 20th, still Wednesday. Check out YouTube. U.S. Grace Force. Love them. There's so many people in the credits. I was just like five minutes and it was going so fast I couldn't read them. That's how many people. Yeah. So anyways, today we had an interview with, let's see who they were. Awesomeness here. Mr. Barry, thank you so much. Representing Maculata and Crest over there. Thank you. And also Father Hailman representing the Knights with his awesome fedora and Father Joseph right behind him. And our new musician find of the day, Mr. Harriet. Yeah, did I get that right? Ed. <laughs> okay, great. He mentioned Rome and we are reading about Rome, are we not? And he has a new uh, a song coming out on every first Friday. Isn't that a hats off? No, he, he, it, it's a fedora tip. <laughs> okay, good. Anyways, so he is introducing us to a very prominent figure in Rome, such as the founder of Rome. What? He founded Rome? That was my question. Who founded Rome, right? 
A E. Yeah, it's all Greek to me. A E N E A. Yes. Right? The whole Greek and Roman thing where it's like two people sitting across the table and you can just turn it 90 degrees and be like, oh, okay. You know me. Anis. Inis. I don't know. I need to learn Greek. Okay. Anyways, it includes Paris. Who doesn't like a good Perry? Greek. Troy. Venus. Aphrodite. Roman. Greco. Roman mythology. Oh, who doesn't like that? He was a Trojan hero, you know, the son of the Trojan prince, Achesis, and the Greek goddess, Aphrodite, a.k.a. Venus. His father was the first cousin of King Priam, of, like Prime, of Troy, both being grandsons of Illus. Founder of Troy, making Aeneas a second cousin to Priam's children, such as Hector and Paris. He is a minor character in the Greek mythology and is mentioned in Homer's Iliad. Who doesn't like a Greek voyage? Bon voyage. One, just one trip. You can do it. Ianus receives full treatment. I've always wanted to open a spa, a.k.a. FYI, by the way. In Roman mythology, most extensively in Virgil's Aeneid. I will know how to read all these names after I read the book, <laughs> which we haven't read since high school. Like, who didn't read, right, Greek mythology in high school? Greco-Roman times. Let's go wrestling, hello, where he is cast as an ancestor of Romulus and Ramus. That's like from Harry Potter to Star Trek. Hello, this is for everybody. He became the first true hero of Rome. We have a whole bunch of firsts here. Snorri Sturluson identifies him with the Norse god, Vjorn of the Icer. Like a salute. Okay, right. Oh, boy. I'll just show you the picture. There's somebody sticking something in his thigh, and it's bleeding, and another girl's like, oh, my gosh, I can't even see this. I'm going to put my towel, my, my shawl in front of my face, and the other girl's like, oh, look at these. And he's like, um, okay. Okay, Lapix, L-A-P-Y-X, removing an arrowhead from the leg of Ianus with Ianus's son, Escanius. Oh, it was, a, it was a boy, not a girl. Escanius crying beside him. It's an antique fresco from Pompeii. He had one sibling. Lyris, like Cyrus, but with an L. He aboded in Rome. His parents was Achesis and Aphrodite. I see that's your mama. Got it. Consorts. Creusa, Dido, Lavinia. Oh, I like those names. Offsprings, Escanius, 
Escanius, Escanius, and Silvius. So Creusa bore Escanius, and Lavinia bore Silvius. Yeah. If we can find the meaning of the names, I can remember it a lot better. Otherwise, it just goes one ear out the other. Okay, that's a nice introduction. We're gonna go read the book. What book is it? Uh, uh, with a cool cover. Yeah, like people kneeling, coming together. They each have their own house, but they're visiting their neighbors with angel wings. Oh, guardian angel is visiting your neighbor for you. And their guardian angel, and it passes on like a PTA tree. So cool. I should put that on the cover page. It's from St. Michael's College Library. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you. Isn't this a great gift? What is the name? It's printed and published by who? What? The Imitation of Christ. As written by Thomas A. Kempis, K-E-M-P-I-S. Translated by Richard Whitford and decorated by Valenti Angelo. Peter Pauper Press, Mount Vernon. Look at Christ, Karen is Christ. Thank you, Lord. The Imitation of Christ, first Latin edition, circa 1486. First English version, 1503. First edition of the present translation, 1556. Re-edited into modern English by Wilfred Reynold O.S.B. 1872. The contents of this book is very intriguing. It comes in many books. The first book, the second book, the third book, and the fourth book, and that's it. Four books. Okay, great. The first one is called Admonitions Useful for a Spiritual Life. Hey, one size fits all. Let's go. You want to get spiritual? This is the book. You imitate Christ. Can't get better than that. It's the second book, Admonitions Tending to things internal. Got to care of the insides like a refrigerator, you know. The third book. The inward speaking of Christ to a faithful soul. Come on, faithful. A day, stay daily. The fourth book. Concerning the sacrament. And that's it. All right, we'll be right back. Tell me the contents of the first book, why don't you? It's really long, though. Just do it. Do it. Of the imitation or following of Christ and of the despising of all vanities of the world. Can I give it away, right? I mean, come on. Can I just read them? Ah, against vain secular cunning and of a meek knowing. Right? Isn't that appropriate to what we're facing right now today? Number three, of the teaching of truth. Hello, anybody? Number four, the light credence is not to be given to words. Oh, the light 
Credence is not to be given to words. You gotta see it. Got it. Number five. Of the reading of Holy Scripture. H is page 14. Six. Of inordinate affections. Got any? Number seven. That vain hope and elation of mind are to be fled, etc. Number eight. Eight. And that much familiarity is to be avoided. Too much familiarity. Anybody? Number nine. Of meek subjection and obedience, etc. What does meek mean? Anyways, you'll find out. Ten. That we should avoid superity of words, etc. Number 11. The means to get peace and of desire to profit in virtues. 12. Of the profit of adversity. 13. Of temptations to be resisted. 14. That we shall not judge lightly other men's deeds, etc. 15. Of works done in charity. 16. Of the suffering of other men's defaults. 17. What should be the life of a true religious person? 18. Of the examples of holy fathers. 19. Of the exercises of a good religious person. 20. Of the love of loneliness and silence in the house of silence. Number 21. Of compunction of the heart. (laughs) 22. Of the considering of the misery of mankind, and wherein the felicity of man standeth. 23. Of the remembrance of death. 24. Of the last judgment. LJ. And of the pen, pain that is ordained for sin. 25. Of the fervent amending of all life. Uh, I'm sorry. Of the fervent amending of all our life. And that we shall specially take heed of our own soul's health. Soul's health, etc. All that in book one contains. <sighs> Shall I keep going or should I just get to... Yeah, all right. Book two contains admonitions tending to things internal. Number one of 12. Not too bad, right? Okay, great. One of inward conversation. And talk myself again. Number two, of the meek knowing of our own defaults. Defaults by default. Three, how good it is for a man to be peaceful. Number four, of a pure mind 
and a simple intent. Five, of the knowing of ourself. Six, of the gladness of a clean conscience. Seven, of the love of Jesus above all things. Eight, of the familiar friendship of Jesus. Nine, of the wanting of all solace and comfort. Ten, of yielding thanks to God for His manifold graces. Eleven, of the small number of the lovers of the cross. Twelve, of the way of the cross and how profitable patience is in adversity. That wasn't too bad. The other one's coming. It's three pages. Oh, sheesh. All right, keep going. Can I come back and keep going? Fine, take a break. We'll continue with the contents of the third book of Imitate Christ. Is it the imitation of Christ? Imitate the the imitation of Christ. Okay, great. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Today is sep- December 20th, but our reading from Wednesday, the 27th of September, 2017, Pope Francis to the general audience. Dear brothers and sisters, good morning. At this time, we are speaking about hope. But today, I would like to reflect with you on the enemies of hope. Because hope has its enemies. Just like any good in this world has its enemies. The ancient myth of Pandora's box comes to mind. The opening of the box unleashes so many catastrophes in world history. Few people, however, remember the last part of the story, which reveals a glimmer of light. After all the evils have come out of the open box, a tiny gift appears to turn the tables on all that evil that is spreading. Pandora, the woman who had the box in her custody, sees it at last. The Greeks call it E-L-P-I-S, elpis, which means hope. This myth tells us why hope is so important for humanity. It is not right to say that while there's life, there is hope. If anything, it is the contrary. It is hope that supports life that protects it, safeguards it, and makes it grow. If men and women had not nurtured hope, if they had not held on to this virtue, they would never have come out of the caves, and they would have left no trace on the history of the world. It is the most divine thing that can exist in the heart of humankind. I'd like to bring to your attention a French poet, Charles P. 
Pegai, P-E-G-U-Y, has left us beautiful pages on hope. The portico of the mystery of the second virtue. He says in a poetic way that God is not amazed so much by the faith of human beings and not even by their charity. But what really fills him with wonder and moves him is the hope of the people. That those poor children, he writes, see how things are going and believe that they will be better tomorrow morning. The poet's image recalls the faces of many people who have transited through this world, farmers, poor laborers, migrants in search of a better future, who have struggled tenaciously despite the bitterness of a difficult present, filled with many trials, enlivened, however, by the trust that their children would have a more just and serene life. They fought for their children. They fought in hope. Hope is the force that drives the hearts of those who depart, leaving home, their homeland, at times their relatives and families. I am thinking of the migrants in search of a better life, which is worthy of them and their loved ones. And it is also the impulse in the heart of those who welcome the desire to encounter, to get to know each other, to dialogue. Hope is the force that drives us, quote, to share the journey, unquote, because the journey is made jointly by those who come to our land and by us who go towards their heart to understand them, to understand their culture, their language. It is a joint journey by two parties, but without hope, that journey cannot be made. Hope is the drive to share the journey of life as the Caritas campaign, which we are inaugurating today, reminds us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be afraid of sharing the journey. Have no fear. Let us not be afraid of sharing hope. Hope is not a virtue for people with a full stomach. That is why the poor have always been the first bearers of hope. And in this sense, we can say that the poor, even beggars, are history's protagonists. In order to enter the world, God needed them, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds of Bethlehem. On the night of the first Christmas, the world was asleep, laying upon a bed of acquired certainties. But 
humble, hidden people were preparing the revolution of goodness. They were poor in everything. Some remained afloat just above the subsistence level, but they had a wealth of the most valuable asset that exists in this world that is, the desire for change. At times, having had everything life offers is a misfortune. Think about a young man who was never taught the virtues of expectation and patience, who did not have to sweat over anything, who had burned his bridges and at 20, quote, already knows how the world turns, unquote. He is destined to receive the worst punishment, that of not wanting anything anymore. This is the worst punishment, closing the door to desires, to dreams. He seems like a young man, yet autumn has already descended on his heart. These are the young people of autumn. Having an empty soul is the worst obstacle to hope. It is a danger from which no one can say they are exempt because to be tempted against hope can happen even along the journey of Christian life. The monks of ancient times had identified one of the greatest enemies of fervor. They said this, that, that, quote, midday demon, unquote, that flanks a life of labor is precisely as the sun burns on high. This temptation surprises us when we least expect it. The days become monotonous and boring. No aim seems worthy of fatigue. This attitude is called sloth, that erodes life from within until it leaves it like an empty shell. When this happens, the Christian knows that that condition must be fought against, never accepted with inertia. God created us for joy and happiness and not to wallow in melodramatic, melancholic thoughts. This is why it is important to safeguard one's heart, defending ourselves from sad temptations that surely do not come from God. And whereas our strength appears weak and the battle against anxiety is particularly arduous, we can always turn to Jesus' name. We can repeat that simple prayer, traces of which we also find in the Gospels, and that has become the foundation of so many Christian spiritual traditions. A lovely prayer, quote, Lord Jesus Christ, 
Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Unquote. This is a prayer of hope because I turn to him. He who can open the doors wide and resolve the problem and have me look to the horizon, the horizon of hope. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone in fighting against desperation. If Jesus overcame the world, he is capable of overcoming in us all that opposes goodness. If God is with us, no one will steal from us that virtue which we absolutely need for life. No one can rob us of hope. So let's go forward. I am pleased to greet the representatives of Caritas, who have come here to officially launch the campaign called Share the Journey. A nice name for your campaign, Sharing the Journey that I wanted to coincide with this audience. I welcome the migrants, the asylum seekers, and refugees who, together with the staff and volunteers of Caritas Italiana and other Catholic organizations, are the sign of a church which tries to be open, inclusive, and welcoming. Thank you all for your tireless service. To the public, I say you have already applauded, but they all truly deserve a loud applause from all of you. Through your daily efforts, you remind us that Christ himself asks us to welcome our brother and sister migrants and refugees with open arms, with arms wide open, welcoming in this way with arms wide open. When our arms are open, they are ready for a sincere embrace, an affectionate embrace, an enveloping hug, a bit like this colonnade in the square, which represents the mother church, which embraces all in the shared common journey. I welcome also the representatives of many organizations from civil society engaged in assistance to migrants and refugees who, together with Caritas, have given their support to the petition for a new law on migration better adapted to the current context. You are all welcome. And finally, we're gonna end with a special greetings a cordial welcome to Italian-speaking pilgrims. I am pleased to greet the faithful from different parishes, the priests who are celebrating their 25th anniversary of ordination, the participants of the general chapter of the Missionaries of Faith, the sister of St. Elizabeth, who today recall the 175th anniversary of their foundation, the priests of the International Pontifical Missionary College, San Pablo Apostolo in Rome, and the members of the Lay Missionary Institute, Maria Madre Dei Redentore, I exhort all of you to always be faithful to the charism received, witnessing in the places of apostolate the merciful love of the Father. 
I greet the Opera Nazionale per il Mezzogiorno d'Italia, the Finance Police of Abruzzo, the National Association of Carabinieri of Taglia Coso, and the Filipino community from Venice. Lastly, I greet the young people, the sick, and newlyweds. May the example of charity of St. Vincent the Paul, whom today we recall is patron of charitable associations, lead you, dear young people, to realize your future projects with joyous and disinterested service to the most needy. May it help you, dear sick people, to face suffering with ablative faith, and may it induce you, dear newlyweds, to build a family always open to the duties of hospitality, the duties of hospitality and the gift of life. Period. Copyrighted Dicastero de per la Comunicazione Libreria Libreria Editrice Vaticana. Okay, thank you for listening. We'll be right back with the poem book that he is introducing to us. He cited it right here. The Portico of the Mystery of the Second Virtue. I'm guessing that's hope. <laughs> we'll be right back. Good morning. Today is December 21st, 2023. And... As of the 18th, what, four days ago? One, two, three days ago. Three, four days ago. Okay. Pope Francis. English translation of Pope Francis's response issued on October. That's not October, November, two, three months ago. Two, three months ago. Okay. It takes time for them to come up with the right, complete translation. All right. Remember that movie called Loss in Translation? I never saw it, but I get it. You don't want to lose anything in translation, people. So I would not like someone to judge me and spread my message based on hearsay. Even the court, the mightiest court of the land, Supreme Court, does not, or any civil circuit or any lower court, Take hearsay as legitimate. So let us not do so individually. Especially when we go around saying we should not judge. If you think we should not judge, then we should definitely not admit hearsay or things that are not provable. Yeah? Can we say that's truth? If it's provable? Because you know what? opposite of what popular people say. God does not expect you to believe without proof. He said, ask, seek, and find. That does not sound like, just believe me. All right, don't question. That's Satan, people. I'm not even saying, I'm not going to say socialist, communist. I'm going to go straight to the S word. You want an S word and a D word, okay? You can't fight your enemy if you don't know his name. First rule of exorcism. So let's hear it from our blessed Pope's 
own words translated. And we should read it in Latin or Spanish, which he wrote, originally wrote it, supposedly, according to Vatican News. Die Castri, this is straight from Vatican.va. Die Castri, for, that's a new word, right? Magisterium, now there's Die Castri. What is that? I don't know. But it's from the Die Castri, sounds like they're casting something, for Dei, the God. Die Castri for the doctrine of the faith. All right. What is this? A declaration. What's the name of it? Fiducia. Supplicans. Okay. Supplementary faith. Okay, great. To supplement your faith. Fiducia supplicans. Okay. On what? The topic of the pastoral meaning of blessings. First section. Presentation. This declaration considers several questions that have come to this dicastery in recent years. What does that tell us? He accepts questions. He answers them. It may take him time. All right. Virtue is a patience. Per, for, patience is a virtue. Okay. In preparing the document, the dicastery in its practice consulted experts. You don't want them just to fly off the handle and give you a, a thought, do you? Of course not. They consulted experts, undertook a careful drafting process. It wasn't just one person. And discussed the text in the Congresso of the doctrinal section of the dicastery. During that time, the document was discussed with the Holy Father. Finally, that's Pope Francis. Finally, a.k.a. Holy See. Finally, the text of the declaration was submitted to the Holy Father for his review, and he approved it with his signature. All right? Just like when you sign a check, you approve it. Better know what's written on that check. Yeah. While the subject matter of this document was being studied, the Holy Father's response to the dubia. All right, do we have any Sherlock Holmes fans in the house? And he always goes, ooh, Watson, that is dubious. What does that mean? Doubt, question, dubious. Dubia means doubts, literally, doubts, literally. So. If you have doubts, send your questions to the dicastery, if you're a bishop. Of some cardinals were made, or cardinal. Okay, so cardinals, this is like, right, like military has its rank and file and order of communication, right? You got to go to the right source to get, right, department, okay? You guys follow that. So if you have a dubia, a doubt, you go up the chain. You give it to your priest. The priest gives it to his bishop. The bishop to his cardinal. The cardinal goes up the line. It's kind of like courts. Anybody? The Holy Father's response to the dubia of some cardinals, not the bird, cardinals are the, you know, like bishops who are higher ranking, the, you know, you like, you, you know, it's like you, you first go in and you're a newbie, you're green, you don't know nothing, okay? It's like getting a black belt doesn't mean you can defend yourself against any situation. 
You just just graduated. You understand? Just graduated. All right, great. No real life experience. Got it. You got to earn the title. Get it? The response provided important clarifications for this reflection. It's a reflection and represents a decisive element for the work of the dicastery. They got the work cut out for them. Since the quote, Roman Curia is primarily an instrument, yeah, just like a promissory note is a monetary instrument, at the service of the successor of Peter. Yeah. Services, the successor of Peter, apostolic constitution, predicat, evangelium, Roman numeral number two, section one, first one. Our work must foster, along with an understanding of the church's perennial doctrine, the reception of the Holy Father's teaching. Hello, what's your job? If you're a priest and you're saying that the Pope is false, you better back it up. Because it is the parishioners, members of the church, to have a relationship with the priest, is it not? If you have questions, give it to your priest. If he can't answer you, hold him responsible. As, right, you know what the hardest part of doing a job for the corporate is? They expect you to boss yourself. Well, if I really bossed it myself, I would be a, a, a self-employed but no, I got to go by your rules. So, you better hold me responsible. And I got to hold you responsible. Who holds anybody responsible? Big brother, but you don't like that. So, here's a better way. Come on, people. Just like in within a family, I tell my kids to hold me responsible. And I hold them responsible. And we both get better. I can't do everything. I'm going to go crazy and die. As with the Holy Fathers, look at St. Carlos, Arcutus. His mom says he was like her. He was younger than the mother, of course, but he was wise for his age. And so even his mother respected him like a father, like a priest, like a father would be a priest in his own home. Hello, anybody? That is doctrine. As with the Holy Fathers above-mentioned response to the dubia of two cardinals, this declaration remains firm on the traditional doctrine of the church about marriage. Remains firm on the traditional doctrine of the church about marriage. That should tell you everything you need to know. Nothing's being new here. Not allowing any type of liturgical rite. You want the technical term? Liturgical R-I- T-E, R-I-T-E, no W, no G-H-T, R-I-T-E, or blessing similar to a liturgical rite that can be, that can create confusion. All right, we're not trying to confuse you. It would be more confusing if they did try to put something new in here. The value of this document, however, is that it offers a specific and innovative contribution to the pastoral meaning of blessings. Does anybody know what the meaning of blessings is? I found the book of blessings. I'm going to go read it. Permitting a broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding 
of blessings. See, there's the objective rule and doctrine, and then there's your understanding of it, which we're supposed to align our understanding to the correct one, not the other way around, and then blame them for it, people. Not naming any names that I might eventually praying for them now, which is closely linked to a liturgical perspective. Such theological reflection based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis implies a real development from what has been said about blessings in the magisterium and the official texts of the church. Read those. He has a vision to get it done, people, just like any president. But if you don't agree with him, you don't work with him, you don't want to take him at his word and, and try to understand him instead of just pointing fingers at him, okay, that things were doing wrongly to the political leaders of our country who are doing the same thing to the church. I'm only giving you S and D at the head. You want to listen to them or you want to listen to the good one? Hello. Anyways, I'm going to stop now. This explains why this text has taken on the typology, typology people, typology of a quote, declaration, unquote. It is precisely in this context that one can understand the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations and same-sex couples without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's perennial teaching on marriage. This declaration is intended as a tribute to the faithful people of God. It's a tribute. Who worship the Lord with so many gestures of deep trust in his mercy and who with this confidence constantly come to seek a blessing from Mother Church. Signed, Victor Manuel Cardinal Fernandez, title Prefect. Introduction, number one. Verse number one. The supplicating trust of the faithful people of God receives the gift of blessing that flows from the heart of Christ through his church. Pope Francis offers this timely reminder, quote, the great blessing of God is Jesus Christ. He is the great gift of God, his own son. He is a blessing for all humanity, a blessing that has saved us all. He is the eternal word with whom the Father blessed us while we were still sinners, Roman 5, 8. As St. Paul says, what's up, happy engineer? He is the word made flesh, offered for us on the cross. Verse 2. Encouraged by such a great and consoling truth, the dicastery has considered several questions of both a formal and an informal nature about the possibility of blessing same-sex couples and 
in the light of Pope Francis's fatherly and pastoral approach, of offering new clarifications on the title "Responsum ad dubium" that the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith published on the twenty-second of February, two o two one. O two 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 o two one. I'm gonna go read that. Yeah, here. Verse three. The above mentioned responsum elicited numerous and varied reactions. Some welcomed the clarity of the document and its consistency with the church's perennial teaching. Others did not share the negative response it gave to the question. Negative response. Okay, there's a difference between a positive response, yeah, 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 and a negative response. It's church terminology. Because there's a lot of things. It's a mystery, people. Others do not. It, it's 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 your own progress in the mystery that needs to be considered as well. So before you tell somebody who's always also in the mystery who has been. And、uh, given a title and a responsibility versus your opinion, versus your knowledge in the dark, who should we listen to? Please show some respect. Others did not share the negative response it gave to the question, nor did, or did not consider the formulation. Of its answer and the reasons provided in the attached, entitled, explanatory note. To be sufficiently clear. To meet the latter reaction with fraternal charity, it seems opportune to take up the theme again, and offer a vision that draws together the doctrinal aspects, with the pastoral ones. In a coherent manner, because quote, all religious teaching ultimately has to be reflected in the teacher's way of life. Right? You gotta do the do and walk the talk. It's easier that way, which awakes, which awakens the ascent of the heart. That's what we focus on. Heart. Nothing else will change the man by its nearness. Nearness, love, and witness. Can you give me that whole quote without interjection? Great. Quote: All religious teaching ultimately has to be reflected in the teacher's way of life, which awakens the ascent of the heart by its nearness, love, and witness. Roman numeral one. The blessing in the sacrament of marriage. Verse four. Pope Francis's recent response to the second of the five questions posed by two cardinals offers an opportunity to explore this issue further, especially in its pastoral implications. It is a matter of avoiding that, quote. Something that is not marriage is being recognized as marriage. Unquote. We're avoiding that. Therefore, rites and prayers that could create 
confusion between what constitutes marriage, which is the exclusive, stable, and indissolvable union between a man and a woman. A union naturally open to the generation of children. Naturally open to the generation of children. Unquote. And what contradicts it are inadmissible, not admissible. This conviction is grounded in the perennial Catholic doctrine of marriage. It is only, only in this context that sexual relations find their natural, natural, proper, proper, and fully human meaning. Meaning in the fully human sense. Fully human meaning. The church's doctrine on this point remains firm. Like a firmament. Number five. This is also the understanding of marriage that is offered by the gospel. For this reason, when it comes to blessings, the church has the right and the duty to avoid any R-I-T-E right that might contradict this conviction or lead to confusion. Such is also the meaning of the responsum of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which states that the church does not have the power to impart blessings on unions of persons of the same sex. You understand the trappings of these questions? Anyone, like the Pharisees asking Jesus? Anyone. Typology. You're asking me about something I don't have the right to do. Do you know I don't have the right to do? Are you a cardinal? Number six. It should be emphasized that the capital R, little I-T-E, right of, it's being named, that's why it's a capital R, sacrament of marriage. It's a title, S-M, sacrament of marriage, R-S-M, right of sacrament of marriage. This concerns, it should be emphasized that in the right of the sacrament of marriage, this concerns not just any blessing, but a gesture reserved to the ordained minister. In this case, the blessing given by the ordained minister is tied directly to the specific union of a man and a woman who establish an exclusive and indissolvable covenant, covenant, not contract, covenant, by their consent. This fact allows us to highlight the risk of confusing a blessing given to any other union with the right that is proper to the sacrament of marriage. Roman number two, the meaning of the various blessings. Verse seven, the Holy Father's above-mentioned response invites us to broaden and enrich the meaning of blessings. All right, we're general, we're going back to a more general term here. All right, zoom out. Verse eight, 
blessings are among the most widespread and evolving sacramentals. Blessing is a sacrament; it's an evolving one and the most spread. Indeed, they lead us to grasp God's presence in the events of life, and remind us that even in the use of created things, human beings are invited to seek God, to love Him, and to serve Him faithfully. For this reason, blessings have, as their recipients, people, objects of worship and devotion, sacred images, places of life, of work, and suffering. The fruits of the earth, and human toil, and all created realities. That refer back to the Creator, praising and blessing Him by their beauty. God created you like that. If He didn't, if He needed all that stuff, He would have created you with it. That's my take on it. If He didn't make me with it, I don't need it. No matter how much you try to push on me and don't try to guilt me or 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 bully me or or. Demean me into thinking I need it because I ain't buying it. Section title: The liturgical, the liturgical meaning of the rites of blessing. Verse nine. In a strictly liturgical point of view, a blessing requires that what is blessed be conformed to God's will. All right, you're being conformed to His will. That's what a blessing is. Get it? As expressed in the teachings of the church, verse ten. Indeed, blessings are celebrated by virtue of faith, and are ordered to the praise of God and the spiritual benefit of His people. Here it is, people. Bookmark, book of blessings, as the book of blessing explains. Quote, so that this intent might become more apparent, Kenzie, by an ancient tradition, the formulas of blessing are primarily aimed at giving glory to God for His gifts, asking for His favor, and restraining the power of evil in the world. Unquote. Therefore, those who invoke God's blessing through the church are invited to quote strengthen their dispositions through faith, for which all things are possible. You thinking something's impossible? Go get a blessing, and to trust in quote the love that urges the observance of God's commandments, the love that urges the observance. Of God's commandments, unquote. This is why, while quote, there is always and everywhere an opportunity to praise God through Christ in the Holy Spirit, unquote, there is also a care to do so with quote, things, places, or circumstances that do not contradict the law 
or the spirit of the gospel, the capital G, unquote. This is a liturgical understanding of blessings insofar as they are rites officially proposed by the church. Verse 11, basing itself on these considerations, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's explanatory note to its 2021 responsum recalls that when a blessing is invoked on certain human relationships by a special liturgical rite, it is necessary that what is blessed corresponds with God's design written in creation and fully revealed by Christ the Lord. For this reason, since the church has always considered only those sexual relations that are lived out within marriage to be morally licit, L-I-C-I-T, the church does not have the power to confer its liturgical blessing when that would somehow offer a form of moral legitimacy to a union that presumes to be presumes to be a marriage or to a to an extra marital sexual practice you're already outside of the marriage extra marital sexual practice the Holy Father reiterated, reiterated the substance of this declaration on his entitled Respuestas to the Dubia of the Two Cardinals. We'll be right back with verse 12. All right, let me read one more article on this subject and we'll put it to sleep, hopefully. Responsum, that's the title of this one, Responsum, R-E-S-P-O-N-S-U-M, of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith to a dubium, D-U-B-I-U-M, regarding the blessing of the unions of persons of the same sex. To the question proposed, what was the question? Um, excuse me, does the church have the power to give the blessings to unions of persons of the same sex. Response? Negative. Court adjourned. Well, that was fast. Okay, you want an explanation? Here's the explanatory note. In some ecclesiastical contexts, plans and proposals for blessings of unions of persons of the same sex are being advanced. Such projects are not frequently motivated by a sincere desire to welcome and accompany homosexual persons to whom are proposed paths of growth in faith, quote, so that those who manifest a homosexual orientation can receive the assistance they need to understand and fully carry out God's will in their lives, unquote. In such, on such paths, Listening to the word of God, prayer, participation in ecclesial 
liturgical actions and the exercise of charity can play an important role in sustaining the commitment to one to read one's own history and to adhere with freedom and responsibility to one's baptismal call because quote god loves every person and the church does the same unquote rejecting all unjust discrimination among the liturgical actions of the church the sacramentals have a singular importance quote these are sacred signs that resemble the sacraments they signify effects particularly of a spiritual kind which are obtained through the church's intercession by them men are disposed to receive the chief effect of the sacraments and various occasions of life are sanctified unquote. the catechism of the catholic church specifies then that quote, sacramentals do not confer the grace of the holy spirit in the way that the sacraments do sacramentals are different from sacraments okay so sacramentals do not confer the grace of the holy spirit in the way that the sacraments do but by the church's prayer they prepare us to receive grace and dispose us to cooperate with it number 1630 i mean 1670 of ccc blessings blessings belong to the category of the sacramentals whereby the church quote calls us to praise god encourages us to implore his protection and exhorts us to seek his mercy by our holiness of life unquote. in addition they quote, have been established as a kind of imitation of the sacraments blessings are signs above all of spiritual effects that are achieved through the church's intercession unquote. consequently in order to confirm with the nature of sacramentals when a blessing is invoked on particular human relationships in addition to the right intention of those who participate it is necessary that what is blessed be objectively and positively ordered to receive and express grace according to the designs of God inscribed in creation and fully revealed by Christ the Lord therefore only those realities 
which are in themselves ordered to serve those ends are congruent with the essence of the blessing imparted by the church. For this reason, it is not L-I-C-I-T, licit, to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships, even stable, that involve sexual activity outside of marriage. Not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships, even stable, that involve sexual activity outside of marriage, i.e. outside the dissolvable, indissolvable, cannot be dissolved, indissolvable, you cannot dissolve it, indissolvable union of a man and a woman, like a child, you can't, it's not, it's not dissolvable, you can't dissolve a child, outside the indissolvable union of a man and a woman, open in itself to the transmission of life. As in the case of the unions between persons of the same sex. Not licit. The presence in such relationships of positive elements, which are in themselves to be valued and appreciated, cannot justify these relationships, cannot, and render them legitimate objects of ecclesial blessing, cannot. Since the positive elements exist within the context of a union not ordered to the creator's plan. Yeah, all right, that wasn't in the, can't put you in order because that was never from the beginning, it wasn't. Furthermore, since blessings on persons are in relationship with the sacraments, okay, the blessings on persons are in relationship with the sacraments, the blessing of homosexual unions cannot be considered licit. This is because they would constitute a certain imitation or analogy of the nuptial blessing invoked on the man and woman united in the sacrament of matrimony. While in fact, quote, there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family, period, unquote. The declaration of the unlawfulness of blessings of unions between persons of the same sex is not therefore and is not intended to be a form of unjust discrimination but rather a reminder of the truth of the liturgical rite, R-I-T-E, and of the very nature of the sacramentals as the church understands them, as the church understands them. The Christian community and its pastors are called to welcome with respect and sensitivity persons with homosexual inclinations and will not know how to find the most appropriate ways consistent with church teaching to proclaim them or proclaim to them the gospel in its fullness. At the same time, they should recognize the genuine nearness 
of the church, which prays for them, accompanies them, and shares their journey of Christian faith, and receive the teachings with sincere openness. The answer to the proposed dubium does not preclude the blessings given to individual persons with homosexual inclinations who manifest the will to live in fidelity to the revealed plans of God as proposed by church teaching. Rather, it declares illicit I-L-L-I-C-I-T, illicit, any form of blessing that tends to acknowledge their unions as such. All right? It declares illicit, any form of blessing that tends to acknowledge their union as such. In this case, in fact, the blessing would manifest not the intention to entrust such individual persons to a protection and help of God, in the sense mentioned above, but to approve and encourage a choice in a way of life that cannot be recognized as objectively ordered to the plans, the revealed plans of God, period. Some final thoughts. At the same time, the church recalls that God himself never ceases to bless each of his pilgrim children in this world because for him, quote, we are more important to God than all of the sins that we can commit, unquote, period. But he does not and cannot bless sin. He blesses sinful man so that he may recognize that he is part of his plan of love and allow himself to be changed by him, he, in fact, quote, takes us as we are, but never leaves us as we are, unquote, period. For the above mentioned reasons, the church does not have, and cannot have, the power to bless unions of persons of the same sex in the sense intended above. The sovereign pontiff Francis at the audience granted to the undersigned secretary of this congregation was informed and gave his assent to the publication and the above mentioned responsum ad dubium with the annexed explanatory note. Means it's been approved by Father Francis. Rome from the offices of the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith on the second, the 22nd of the second month of 2021, February 22nd, 2021, feast of the chair of St. Peter, the Apostle. Yours truly, Louise F. Cardinal Ladaria, S.I. Prefect. Also, Giacomo Morandi, Archbishop, title of Servateri, title, Secretary. All right. References from a lot of stuff. Okay, great. Goodbye. All right, I've seen the Book of Blessings for a while, but I'm like, is this something I should read all the way through? But, you know, they're more for, like, specific occasions, but, right, I should read them just to get an idea of what's in here. All right, here we go. Forward. 
I'm reading the foreword. This abridged edition, abridged, of the Book of Blessings means it's longer, even compared to this one. This one's really long already. 600 pages. Anyways, this abridged edition of the Book of Blessings contains the approved English translation of De Benedictionibus, prepared by the International Commission on English in the Liturgy, ICEL, as well as additional orders and prayers of blessings prepared by the Committee on the Liturgy, Liturgy of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops and approved for use in the Diocese of the United States of America. The Book of Blessings and the New Blessings for the United States have been given provisional or interim approval. Eventually, the English translation of the Roman Blessings will be revised by the International Commission on English in the Liturgy, and the American Blessings will be revised by the Bishops' Committee on the Liturgy. In both cases, the revisions may be based on the comments received concerning this edition of the Book of Blessings. The numbering of this edition differs from both that of the Latin edition and that of the complete English edition approved for use in the Diocese of the United States of America. Since this abridged Book of Blessings has been prepared for use when blessings are celebrated outside of Mass or outside of the Church, the rites of blessing during Mass and those which are celebrated in the Church or with greater solemnity have been omitted. Oh, great. This is stuff I need then outside the Church. Perfect. On such occasions, the complete edition of the Book of Blessings should be used. Get it. The omission of part three. Blessings of objects that are designed or erected for use in churches, either in the liturgy or the popular devotions, and all the blessings celebrated during Mass has necessitated the renumbering of of this abridged edition. Although the numbering differs between the two editions, the sequence of the blessings remains essentially the same in both editions. For the sake of convenience, the reference numbers of the complete edition are given for those blessings which may be celebrated within the Mass. Oh, for the sake of convenience, the reference numbers of the complete edition are given for those blessings which may be also celebrated within mass all right we're gonna I'll, I'll be back the book of blessings was approved by the administrative committee of the national conference of catholic bishops on march 22nd 1988 confirmed by the apostolic see on the 27th of january 1989 bye written april 1st 1990 okay so i have a jewel for you says the person who led me to it code of canon Law. Cannonballs? Anybody? Book four. Function of the church. So the canon, the code of canon law is really long and it's kind of like describing all the duties and um, the the whole thing has to do with the administration of the church until I got to this part and I was like, oh wait, I think this is cool to read for us since we're not, you know, in religious administration or whatever that is anyways i'm skipping forward okay great book four function of the church right isn't that everybody's question liber four de ecclesiae munere sanctificandi anyways it's canon 834 section one here we go the church fulfills its sanctifying function 
in a particular way through the sacred liturgy, which is an exercise of the priestly function of Jesus Christ. Priestly function. In the sacred liturgy, the sanctification of humanity is signified through sensible signs and effected in a manner proper to each sign. In the sacred liturgy, the whole public worship of God is carried out by the head, with a capital H, and members of the mystical body of Jesus Christ, BJC. Section 2. Such worship takes place when it is carried out in the name of the church, capital C, by persons legitimately uh, designated and through acts approved by the authority of the church. Canon 835, Section 1. The bishops, in the first place, exercise the sanctifying function. The bishops, they are the high priests, the principal dispensers of the mystery of God, mysteries of God, and the directors, promoters, and guardians of the entire liturgical life in the church entrusted to them. 835, Section 2. Presbyters also exercise this function, sharing in the priesthood of Christ and as his ministers under the authority of the bishop. They are consecrated to celebrate divine worship and to sanctify the people. Section 3. Deacons. Deacons have a part in the celebration of divine worship according to the norm of the prescripts of the law. Section 4. The other members of the Christian faithful also have their own part in the function of sanctifying by participating actively in their own way in the liturgical celebrations, especially the Eucharist. Parents share in a particular way in this function by leading a conjugal life in a Christian spirit and by seeing to the Christian education of their children. Canon 836. Since Christian worship, in which the common priesthood of the Christian faithful is carried out, is a work, is a work which proceeds from faith and is based on it. Sacred ministers are to take care to arouse and enlighten this faith diligently, especially through the ministry of the word, which gives birth to and nourishes the faith. Yes, I'm reading story. Canon 837, Section 1. Liturgical actions are not private actions, but celebrations of the church itself, 
which is the sacrament of unity. That is, a holy people gathered and ordered under the bishops. Liturgical actions, therefore, belong to the whole body of the church and manifest and affect it. They touch its individual members in different ways. However, according to the diversity of orders, functions, and actual participation. Section two, inasmuch as liturgical actions by their nature entail a common celebration, they are to be celebrated with the presence and active participation of the Christian faithful where possible. Canon 838, Section 1. The ordering and guidance of the sacred liturgy depends solely upon the authority of the church, namely that of the A.S. Apostolic C. S. E. E. And as provided by law, that of the diocesan bishop. Section 2. It is for the apostolic see to order the sacred liturgy of the universal church, publish liturgical books, recognize adaptations approved by the Episcopal Conference according to the norm of law, and exercise vigilance that liturgical regulations are observed faithfully everywhere. Section 3. It pertains to the Episcopal conferences to faithfully prepare versions of the liturgical books in vernacular languages suitable, suitably accommodated within defined limits and to approve and publish the liturgical books for the regions for which they are responsible after the confirmation of the Holy See, um, um, after the confirmation of the Apostolic See. Section 4. Within the limits of his competence, it belongs to the diocesan bishop to lay down in the church entrusted to his care liturgical regulations which are binding on all. Canon 839, Section 1. The church carries out the function of sanctifying also by other means, both by prayers in which it asks God to sanctify the Christian faithful in truth, and by works of penance and charity, which greatly help to root and strengthen the kingdom of Christ in souls and contribute to the salvation of the world. Section 2. Local ordinances are to take care that the prayers and pious and sacred exercises of the Christian people are fully in keeping with the norms of the church. Part 1. The Sacraments. Canon 840. 
the sacraments of the New Testament are instituted by Christ the Lord and entrusted to the Church. As actions of Christ and the Church, they are signs and means which express and strengthen the faith, render worship to God, and effect the sanctification of humanity, and thus contribute in the greatest way to establish, strengthen, and manifest ecclesiastical communion. Accordingly, in the celebration of the sacraments, the sacred ministers and the other members of the Christian faithful must use the greatest veneration and necessary diligence. Canon 8.4.1 Since the sacraments are the same for the whole church and belong to the divine deposit, it is only for the supreme authority of the church to approve or define the requirements for their validity. It is for the same or another competent authority, according to the norm of Canon 838, section, section 3 and 4, to decide what pertains to their licit celebration, administration, and reception, and to the order to be observed in their celebration. Canon 842, section 1. A person who has not received baptism cannot be admitted validly, validly to the other sacraments. Section 2. The sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the most holy Eucharist are interrelated in such a way that they are required for full Christian initiation. Canon 843, section 1. Sacred ministers cannot deny the sacraments to those who seek them at appropriate times, are properly disposed, and are not prohibited, and are not prohibited by law from receiving them. Okay, we're going to have to come back later. He is just screaming. He has took us off. Section 2. Pastors of souls and other members of the Christian faithful, according to their respective ecclesiastical function, have the duty to take care that those who seek the sacraments are prepared to receive them by proper evangelization and catechetical instruction, attentive to the norms issued by competent authority. Last two, and then we're ending this screaming. Canon 844, Section 1. Catholic ministers administer the sacraments licitly to Catholic members of the Christian faithful alone, who likewise receive them licitly from Catholic ministers alone, without prejudice to the prescripts of Sections 2, 3, and 4 of this canon, and Canon 861, Section 2. 
Section two of A four four. Whenever necessary, whenever necessity requires it, or true spiritual advantage suggests it, and provided that danger of error or of indifferentism is avoided, the Christian faithful for whom it is physically or morally impossible to approach a Catholic minister. Are permitted to receive the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick from non-Catholic ministers in whose churches these sacraments are valid. Okay, that's not the end. Okay, well, I'm just gonna end it here. There's section three, four, and five. All right, just finish it. Section three: Catholic ministers administer the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the licitly to members of Eastern churches, which do not have full communion with the Catholic Church, if they seek such on their own accord and are properly disposed. This is also valid for members of other churches, which, in the judgment of the Apostolic See, are in the same condition in regard to the sacraments、uh, as these Eastern churches. Section four: If the danger of death is present, or if, in the judgment of the diocesan bishop or Catholic conference of bishops, some other grave necessity urges it, Catholic ministers. Administer these same sacraments licitly also to other Christians not having full communion with the Catholic Church, who cannot approach a minister of their own community and who seek such on their own accord, provided that they manifest Catholic faith in respect to these sacraments and are properly disposed. Section five, for the cases mentioned in sections two, three, and four, the diocesan bishop or conference of bishops is not to issue general norms, except after consultation at least with the local competent authority or the interested non-Catholic church or community. All right, I'm gonna stop it right here. Do we want more? Just a lot of nitty-gritty legal detail. All right, just. Finish it. Section five for the cases mentioned in sections two, three, and four. Oh no, I did that already. Canon eight, four, five, section one. Okay, it's just five more lines. Since the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and orders imprint a character, they cannot be repeated. Section two. If after completing a diligent inquiry, a prudent doubt still exists. Whether the sacraments mentioned in section one are actually or validly conferred, they are to be conferred conditionally. Canon eight four six section one. In celebrating the sacraments, the liturgical books approved by competent authority are to be observed faithfully. Accordingly, no one is to add, omit, or alter anything in them on one's own authority. Section two: The minister is to celebrate the sacraments according to the minister's own right. Okay, last one. We're coming to an end here. Canon eight four seven, section one: In administering the sacraments in which holy oils must be used, the minister must use oils pressed from olives or other plants, and 
without prejudice to the prescript of Canon 999, number 2, consecrated or blessed recently by a bishop, he is not to use old oils unless it is necessary. Uh-huh. Section two. The pastor is to obtain the holy oils from his own bishop and is to preserve them diligently with proper care. Canon 848. The minister is to seek nothing from the administration of the sacraments beyond the offerings defined by competent authority, always taking care that the needy are not deprived of the assistance of the sacraments because of poverty. All right, that's not so bad. We'll be back. That's the end of part one, the sacraments. Next up, still on book four, Function of the Church, is Title I, Baptism, Canon 849 to 878A, the celebration of baptism. I really should be reading this. All right, fine. Canon 849, baptism, the gateway to the sacraments and necessary for salvation by actual reception or at least by desire is validly conferred only by a washing of true water with the proper form of words. Through baptism, men and women are freed from sin, are reborn as children of God, and configured to Christ by an indelible character, and are incorporated into the church. Chapter 1. The Celebration of Baptism, Canon 850. Baptism is administered according to the order prescribed in the approved liturgical books, except in cases of urgent necessity, when only those things required for the validity of the sacrament must be observed. Canon 851. The Celebration of Baptism must be prepared properly. Consequently, uh, Parentheses 1, an adult who intends to receive baptism is to be admitted to the catechumenate and is to be led insofar as possible through the various stages to sacramental initiation according to the order of initiation adapted by the Conference of Bishops in the special norms issued by it. Parentheses 2, the parents of an infant to be baptized and those who are to undertake the function of sponsor are to be instructed properly on the meaning of the sacrament and the obligations attached to it. The pastor personally or through others is to take care that the parents are properly instructed through both pastoral advice and common prayer, bringing several families together and where possible, visiting them. Canon 852, Section 1. The prescripts of the canon on adult baptism are to be applied to all those who, no longer infants, have attained the use of reason. Section 2. A person who is not responsible for oneself, non squi compos, is also regarded as an infant with respect to baptism. 
Canon 853. Apart from a case of necessity, the water to be used in conferring baptism must be blessed according to the prescripts of the liturgical books. Canon 854. Baptism is to be conferred either by immersion or by pouring. The prescripts of the conference of the bishops are to be observed. Canon 855. Parents, sponsors, and pastor are to take care that a name foreign to Christian sensibility is not given. Canon 856. Although baptism can be celebrated on any day, it is nevertheless recommended that it be celebrated ordinarily on Sunday or, if possible, at the Easter Vigil. Canon 857, Section 1. Apart from a case of necessity, the proper place of baptism is a church or oratory. Section 2. As a rule, an adult is to be baptized in his or her parish church and an infant in the parish church of the parents unless a just cause suggests otherwise. Canon 858, Section 1. Every parish church is to have a baptismal font without prejudice to the cumulative right already acquired by other churches. Section 2. After having heard the local pastor, the local ordinary can permit or order for the convenience of the faithful, that there also be a baptismal font in another church or oratory within the boundaries of the parish. Canon 859, if because of the distance or other circumstances, the one to be baptized cannot go or be brought to the parish church or to the other church or oratory mentioned in Canon 858, Section 2, without grave inconvenience, baptism can and must be conferred in another nearer church or oratory, or even in another fitting place. Canon 860, Section 1, apart from a case of necessity, baptism is not to be conferred in private houses, unless the local ordinary is permitted it for a grave cause. Section 2, except in a case of necessity, or for some other compelling pastoral reason, Baptism is not to be celebrated in hospitals unless the diocesan bishop is established otherwise. Chapter 2. The Minister of Baptism, Canon 861, Section 1. The ordinary minister of baptism is a bishop, a presbyter, or a deacon, without prejudice to the prescript of Canon 530, Number 1. Section 2. When an ordinary minister is absent or impeded, a catechist or another person designated for this function by the local ordinary, or in a case of necessity, any person with the right intention, right intention, confers baptism licitly. Pastors of souls, especially the pastor of a parish are to be concerned that the Christian faithful are taught the correct way to baptize. Canon 862, except in a case of necessity, no one is permitted to confer baptism in the territory of another without the required permission, not even upon his own subjects. 
Canon 863, the baptism of adults, at least of those who... Oh, you can't go to another's territory without permission. At the baptism of adults, at least of those who have completed their 14th year, 14th year, is to be conferred... So you're... Oh, baptism of adults, or at least those who have completed their 14th year. Your 14 years, you're kind of an adult. Huh. Is to be, right, that's around puberty. Is to, it is to be deferred to the diocese and bishop so that he himself administers it if he has judged it expedient. Chapter 3, those to be baptized. Canon 864, every person not yet baptized and only such a person is capable of, every person not yet baptized and only such a person is capable of baptism. Canon 865, section 1, for an adult to be baptized, the person must have manifested the intention to receive baptism, have been instructed sufficiently about the truths of the faith and Christian obligations, and have been tested in the Christian life through the catechumenate. The adult is also to be urged to have sorrow for personal sins. Section 2, an adult in danger of death can be baptized if, having some knowledge of the principal truths of the faith, the person has manifested in any way at all the intention to receive baptism and promises to observe the commandments of the Christian religion. Canon 866, unless there is a grave reason to the contrary, an adult who is baptized is to be confirmed immediately after baptism and is to participate in the Eucharistic celebration also by receiving communion. Canon 866. 7, section 1. Parents are obliged to take care that infants are baptized in the first few weeks. As soon as possible after the birth or even before it, they are to go to the pastor to request the sacrament for their child and to be prepared properly for it. Section 2. An infant in danger of death is to be baptized without delay. You can baptize your kid before he's born. That's pretty cool. That reminds me of something. Canon 868, section 1. For an infant to be baptized licitly, the parents are at least one of them, or the person who legitimately takes their place must consent. There must be a founded hope that the infant will be brought up in the Catholic religion. If such hope is altogether lacking, the baptism is to be delayed according to the prescripts of particular law after the parents have been advised about the reason. Okay, I'm good. All right, peeps, see you later. I'm just going to end it at chapter two, the minister of baptism. Later. All right, what are you trying to do? Make a slide. You want to make the slide? Uh-huh. All right, make the slide.
I don't know, it's probably outside. Let's get it. Okay. Oh my stomach, you're making me move too much. Today is December 22nd, and I have found a treasure box, you guys. Oh, wow. Mr. Joseph Pohl, P-O-H-L-E. Thank you. Pohl Press, P-R-E-U-S-S, brings us 12 books. And they all look amazing. The Pole Press series of dogmatic textbooks. First one is what we're reading today. God, His Knowability, Essence, and Attributes. The second book in the series is called The Divine Trinity. Number three, God, the author of nature and the supernatural. Number four, Christology. Number five, Soteriology. That's a new one. A dogmatic treatise on the redemption. Nice. Six, okay, Christology was, oh, number four, Christology was a dogmatic treatise on the incarnation. Then five is Soteriology, the dogmatic treatise on the redemption. Number six, Marianology, the dogmatic treatise on the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with an appendix on the worship of the saints, relics, and images. Seven, now this is what got my attention, grace. I'm always like, what is grace? Actual and habitual. There's a whole book on that. Then, number eight, the sacraments, part one. The sacraments in general, baptism and confirmation. Then, in preparation, we have part two, the Holy Eucharist. To follow later, number 10, the sacraments, part three, penance. Followed by 11, the sacraments, part four, extreme unction, holy orders, and matrimony. And of course, part 12, the twelfth book is on eschatology, the last things. All right, well, we'll be right back to dive in as soon as I can get these kids to quiet down. It's just like that's gonna happen. All right, we we'll just might as well keep going. Okay. General introduction to dogmatic theology, notion, rank, and division 
of dogmatic theology. Part 1. General Definition of Theology Dogmatic theology forms an essential part of theology in general and therefore cannot be correctly defined unless we have an adequate notion of the latter. Theology, then, generally speaking, is the science, ciencia, of faith, fidei, ciencia fidei. Part A. Theology is a science. Every science deduces unknown truths from known and certain principles. That's what I say, like, sounds like algebra. By means of correct conclusions, though, the dogmatician receives and believingly embraces as his principle the infallible truths of revelation and by means of logical construction, systematic grouping, and correct deductions, erects upon this foundation a logical body of doctrine. As does the historian who works with the facts of history or the jurist who is occupied with the statutes or the scientist who employs bodies and their phenomena as materials for scientific construction. Page two. It is true that some scholastics, e.g. Durandus and Vasquez, have denied theology the dignity of a science because it affords no intrinsic insight into the how and why of Catholic dogmas, particularly the mysteries of the Most Holy Trinity, the hypostatic union, etc. But neither do the profane sciences afford us always and everywhere an insight into their highest principles. Take Euclidean geometry, for instance, stands and falls with the axioms of parallels, which has never yet been satisfactorily proved. So much so, the late, that of later years, there has been made an attempt to establish a, quote, non-Euclidean geometry, unquote, independent of that axiom. To this should be added the consideration that there are sciences that derive their basic principles as lemmata, L-E-M-M-A-T-A, from some higher science. Such, for example, is metaphysics. Okay, we've got to go. Bye-bye.